Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. We're on a Week in IndyCar series heading into mid-Ohio, coming straight out of Iowa. Going to have two awesome guests here in Zach Veach from Andretti Autosport, who just put down his best finish of the year with the seventh on the Little Iowa Bull Ring. We also have Darren Keene from the USF 2000 series, a young American, won big in Toronto here recently and is definitely in the championship hunt. So we have Darren following Zach in terms of interviews, and then you all sent in, I think, uh, I believe, five and a half, six pages worth of questions for me, and I'm going to get to those as quickly as I can to close this week's episode. Kick off, as always, saying a huge, huge thanks to Cooper Tires, not just partner of the show, but really folks that make this possible and have believed in this podcast since joining us more than a year and a half ago. Also, Justice Brothers, some old, old, old friends that came on the very beginning of this year that have made this possible as well. So huge thanks to the two of them. Also, our awesome pals at Bell Racing Helmets. Uh, You tend to see a lot of bells in motor racing, so I'm really glad that they are a part of what we're doing. And then finally, our friends at Toronto Motorsports, and they're just loving, loving little house of memorabilia and stickers and T-shirts and you name it, tons of stuff, lots of it IndyCar related. They have some new cool, cool IndyCar memorabilia coming to their stores in the next week or so. And this is just prime stuff from 1990s, 2000 era cart, champ car, helmets, fire suits, a lot of the stuff that you might have seen on display in Toronto on their social media feeds. There's more of it coming. Uh, I just need to earn more money so I can buy it all. So they could be a partner of the podcast and a sponsor, but I guess maybe I'd also be their biggest client. I'm not sure how that would work, but thanks to all of them uh, as usual for doing some really amazing things. So check out torontomotorsports.com here ASAP uh, because there's going to be some great stuff to add to your home couple of interesting newsy bits before we get to Zach Veach and Darren Keene. Great to see R.C. Enerson will be back in the series making his fourth IndyCar start with Carlin now coming up this weekend, having done spring training earlier this year. Really fascinating prospect in young R.C. He did some good things on the road to Indy, Mazda Road to Indy back then. Uh, in Indy Lights definitely showed us <clears throat> some glimpses of something there's something there in those couple of races he did for dale coin towards the end of 2016 he really seemed to just buckle right in and be at ease and be very quick as well and this is pre-sebastian bourdais dale coin racing so minus craig hampson minus a number of things that we know have just helped elevate the program to a much higher level So to consider the fact that young R.C. was able to do some standout things pretty much right away at a point in time where the team was still trying to find its competitive way in some regards. I can't wait to see what he can do this weekend, knowing it's a Carlin entry, right? The team itself is also very young in the series like R.C., so we're not expecting crazy fireworks. can also say that at the same time, 
we do know what Pata Award was able to do with the car uh, here not too long ago. So there's a standard that's been set for RC that will be very interesting to follow. Have heard, not claiming this is going to be a fact or reality, just mentioning this because it's interesting if it ends up being accurate. Uh, I've heard we might have a very, very interesting press conference this weekend at Mid-Ohio. What is Honda's home track, an event sponsored by Honda. have heard that there might indeed be a press conference being considered or possibly being prepared to announce that young Alexander Rossi and Andretti Autosport will be returning with the brand. Again, just heard it from a couple of places. Not saying it's fact by any stretch. Just I wish I was going to be there because uh, if so, I'd love to see it. It'd be uh, fun to see for sure, knowing that as a group, Honda, Andretti, and Rossi in particular sure look like they're going to be the number one, if not 1A, 1B in uh, overall pushback from a year-to-year standpoint, fighting against Team Penske and Joseph Newgarden and who knows who else from the uh, Team Penske Chevy camp there. Might have noticed, if not all of you probably noticed last weekend at Iowa, that Colton Herta's Harding-Steinbrenner racing entry was lacking the... I guess what had become somewhat familiar sponsorship logos of Guess, the renewable energy uh, supplier, uh, the Capstone Turbine Company. There was a whole package of sponsors that had been on the car still waiting on an official, official something out of the team regarding what is happening there. Can say that they're on the topic of, quote, rumors. Uh, having spoken with a number of folks this week within the paddock, uh, there's definite concern. Can't tell you whether it's fully rooted in in truthiness or not, but there's concern about the stability of that team going forward. It's an old story, and the season's still <laughs> this year. This story has been one that just won't go away. I wish it would. I hate it. I hope all of you hate it as well. There's nothing I want to see or hear of less than this young team and this young driver having to worry about how the bills are going to get paid, if they're going to be able to get to the next round, etc., etc. So just in a little bit of housekeeping, house cleaning maybe, uh, you might remember if you listened a couple weeks ago, uh, the last time I wrote a story about this uh, and mentioning coming out of the Indy 500 where some crew members uh, were having to come out of pocket for some consumables to finish building the car, as I kind of forget how to say the word consumables. Um, there's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of pushback uh, from the team. Where's this guy getting this? Where are you coming up with this? You're making it up, Pruitt. Everything's good. See, there's sponsors on the car. Um, Mike Harding, in particular, was uh, was telling a fellow reporter friend how, again, uh, this Pruitt guy's on crack. I don't dispute that, but um, all made up nonsense, fake news, etc. cetera. Uh, and, that, again, that's fine. I totally understand having to posture and position things uh, in the media. Just, when you show up for a race and none of that's on the car, nothing whatsoever, 
and I don't mean a separate sponsor is on board. Hey, we got a, a separate one for this race. I mean nothing. Um, I hate to see it, and I wish that they had everything they need. I don't fully understand why the team continues to struggle to find the basic funding needed. I'm not talking huge funding. I'm not talking, wow, full season guaranteed all at once. I'm just talking the things needed to say, yep, then we're going to go to the next one, and we're going to go to the next one, and hey, sponsors, we need X amount Let's look at this in very small bite size capacities, not big five, six, seven million dollar chunk for the full year capacity. So wish I understood why the struggles existed just to drum up the money, even to go race to race. So beyond any issues that may or may not be in place with uh, the sponsors that we have seen on their car that were not there at Iowa, whether there's more money to be found elsewhere i'm not sure but knowing that this has been a almost endless topic something that has hit three four times this year already questions about them coming out of the gate being able to race pato awards thing going sideways because a team couldn't find the money to honor their contract with him the team barely getting to spring training missing the more or less everybody showing up to Monterey uh, for a private test right before spring training. Uh, And then again, they were crazy quick at spring training, but again, financially some hail Marys had to be done just to get them there in early parts of the season. Very thin financially continues to be really tenuous just from the outside. If this has been the overriding issue it tells me there needs to be a very heavy rethink about marketing plan promotions plan personnel in charge of those things if you have wheels that consistently fall off the left front of the car at some point in time you're gonna have to say fred i love you man (laughs) can't have you changing the left front tire anymore because it keeps falling off over and over and over. That's what we would do if the situation was during pit stops. Uh, if we keep having wheels falling off and off and off and off financially, you could either say, boy, sure, it's a lot of bad luck. Or is there a structural flaw in how things are being done or who are doing those things? Don't know. Just know that for a kid this talented and a team that has clearly shown how talented they are, uh, these are the problems you would expect from lesser teams with lesser drivers. So when it's hitting with those who should not be in the midst of this, um, just creates a pause to think about what changes might be made to eliminate it from becoming the continual wheel falling off syndrome Last thing I'll mention here quickly before we get to our man, Zach Veach. Last week, we had a question sent in by somebody, and I went to answer it, and I answered it in long form, and it was about whether I was going to be in mid-Ohio this weekend to hold another episode of our live Week in IndyCar podcast following last year's that we did in Victory Lane, all courtesy of 
the uh, green savory savory green promotions group and cooper tires making all that possible and it was a lot of fun it was an, an all ohio episode and then we were joined by jay fry but midwest guy so we kind of lumped him in there uh, and in answering that um i use that as a bit of a vehicle to mention why i can't and won't that obviously being with things having to uh, look after on the home front with my wife and i just decided to delete that entire thing because it was too much and since then my wife has also said hey can we please kind of keep things quiet for a little while uh, we have been going through some things that um, really aren't meant for public discourse and i don't mean like it's something folks would talk about but just stuff that's like hey we're going to keep this we're going to keep this in the family right now and so i apologize i as well because i'm dumb in the head uh did not have the person's name saved who sent in that question so i apologize for failing you on that but to answer that question left over from last week no unfortunately we'll not be having a another podcast this weekend we'd planned on it we'd actually planned on it months ago cooper tires was going to put on a big old barbecue in victory lane hamburgers hot dogs probably beers for those who are old enough uh, we we're going to do a big old big old thing and unfortunately uh, just because i can't be there we won't be doing that this weekend hoping to here sometime in the very near future give you some updates on uh, what's going on on the home front no no reason to worry I think most of you know that we have been in a cancer fight now. Uh, actually, boy, we are five weeks away from a one-year anniversary, if anniversary is the right word to use for such things. Um, that's going well. Uh, we have some other issues going on, which aren't well. But uh, my wife's health in general terms and it's a crazy, way, crazy thing to say. Mortality is good. Not in, not in question. So uh, just some other things. Might know or might have seen somewhere that I mentioned we were having to move. So that's <laughs> that's become something that in and among all this, it's a necessity. We're not getting kicked out. Uh, we're not getting, uh, they're not building a, a, a highway uh, through our backyard or any of that kind of stuff. But uh, we're having to move and it's related to uh, some of the issues uh, that we're dealing with right now but anyways um thank you for all those who sent in uh encouraging notes and also to those who have asked questions on social media how's your wife doing uh, i have not responded to any of those and it is intentional it's, i don't know how to answer by saying thanks but i don't want to answer and so i can guarantee you there's a more graceful way to say that i'm just lacking the ability to find that right now so uh we will hopefully hopefully have my first race back at portland in about a month a little over a month and provided all that works out as planned and we're at a place at on the home front where i can catch that little one hour two hour flight north um have a live episode there last year's was probably the uh, it was the first breakout live podcast 
that I'd done. And because we had, I don't know how many people, but we had a lot. And it was all due to a really amazing lineup of Dario Franchitti, Will Power, Sebastian Bourdais, and a couple of other guests that came in as well. But uh, I'm hoping we can do the same exact thing with the same exact guests, maybe even bring you a few more, maybe a legend if he's if he or she is there, um, and just really try and celebrate because it's been far too long since I have been to a motor race. It's actually been far too long since I have traveled more than 20 miles from home. <laughs> I just did that yesterday and realized that since I flew home May 21st, uh, I have not traveled more than about three miles from home um, to and from the hospital. And pretty much that's about it. So um, anyways, all random, meaningless things popping into my mind. But uh, yeah, wish I was going to be there this weekend. Wish I could put on a live show there. But uh, in Speaking with the folks at Portland International Raceway, my pal E.C. Mueller, uh, we were hoping to get something going there, and that would probably be on the Friday, you know, like we did last year, end of day. But we'll try and figure that out if you're going to be there. And then I believe, since they are both local races uh, in September, we'll be doing one at IMSA at Monterey, and then five days later at IndyCar Monterey. So little bit of a west coast thing hopefully if you're attending any of those we will rock them out with some live live podcasts and give you some free stuff because i've got a whole bunch of it left over from Indy that i was not able to give away since i had to head home so with all that said let's get going with our man zach veach bit of a quick visit this time then young darren keen and then a whole heck a bunch of questions you sent in for me and i'm going to try and answer them as quickly as i can so i can get to some other items like packing boxes to move here on the marshall pro podcast our week in indycar show brought to you by cooper tires the justice brothers bell racing helmets and torontomotorsports.com holy cow is it a zach veach episode of the week in indycar I have appeared. You have appeared. <laughs> yes, you have, my man. Mr. <laughs> driving like a crazy person, having your best finish of the year at Iowa. Got a lot of great questions as usual, and some of them start off on that topic. Let's go there first, my man. Uh, Perfect. Seventh place at Iowa. I mean, I know we you want to be talking about, hey, first place at Iowa, What's the mindset, though, coming here a couple days after the event of can this seventh place be the thing that kind of trips you back into the really positive momentum coming out of 18 that it's been a little bit elusive this year? Yeah, no, I hope so. This year, I think uh, it's definitely been the hardest year of my whole life. I mean, just as far as you know, just trying to turn things around and keep them going at the same time. So, you know, I, I feel like we've just, we just haven't had it in some places we've missed here and there, just missed opportunities. And yeah, I mean, luckily Iowa was, I want to say smooth, but all in all it wasn't as well because I mean, 30 minutes before the race, uh, I didn't even think I was going to be able to take the green. We discovered uh, we had a fuel leak basically once we pushed the car to the grid. So my crew did an awesome job of identifying it, ripping it apart as quick as they could, fixing the leak, and getting me back out there right before the 10-minute signal before the race started. 
<clears throat> wow. Well, before we get to the serious questions, as an avid, I don't know, is it called a, are you called a fish tanker? I don't know what you would, I don't know what it's called in terms of a hobby, but was, were there any thoughts of walling off part of like the, the forward part of your Delara DW12 cockpit in this huge rainstorm, having the seat area fill up and putting some fish in there or something to amuse yourself during the rain delay? Uh it would have been helpful. Um, you know, luckily since, you know, none, none of the fish have to uh, succumb to that idea. I have a live camera at my home. So I just, when I'm at the racetrack, I just pull open the app and I can uh, look straight in my fish tank and make sure everything's still alive. So I uh, definitely spent some time on that app during the rain delay. I uh, watched a lot of funny Facebook videos, however they appear. And uh, I even listened to some of your podcasts. So uh, oh, I, I have some time. Well, I, all I can tell you is I got to point you towards some better ones. Um, so we do have a bunch of great questions that have come in here. Um, why don't we start with one before we get into kind of the performance side and season side? I think a lot of folks are curious about Eric Franklin says, Zach, I know most athletes are creatures of habit with a relatively strict pre-race routine. And he asks, what impact does a long rain delay like you had on Saturday have in terms of that race prep? You know, it's one of those things that you kind of, it's a build up, you know, basically the climax is when you get to the green flag and then you kind of settle into the, the rhythm of your race. So, you know, right before that, you know, you got about an hour and a half. That's when you're trying to get that last right amount of food in and just kind of preparing yourself for the lead up. I mean, uh, when we finally got the weather, I was walking to uh, basically driver intro. So, you know, you're getting hyped up like this is time. And then it happened. And then we were sitting there for four hours. I think uh, any other circumstance, it would have been uh, a bit odd. But I think every single driver, including myself, was kind of dreading the 6.15 start time just because the sun was really bad in our eyes coming through turn three. And, you know, it wasn't really a night race, was it? More, I think Marco said it best. It was a late afternoon race. Yeah. So when the rain did come, that's when we all kind of got even more excited because we're like, we might actually get a proper night race here. And, you know, I, I hated it for the fans. I had to stay up till like 2 a.m. But, man, it made things really fun. I think, I think, I hope both NBC and the track saw the value of it being a proper night race we know that mother nature is what made that happen instead of the late afternoon races marco uh, rightly mentioned <laughs> so again at least you know, hoping that everything moves forward obviously hoping we don't have all the crazy weather stuff and so on um i would just say that you know i think there's value here i think there's good stuff here if we can look at both tv schedule and otherwise for next year and years uh, to come that yeah there's something really good here and we knew it because it's been done before at iowa so really happy there let's go to uh jordan darwin who says zach how would you evaluate your sophomore year and what is the team working on to make 2020 your best year yet oh interesting so jordan's already sounds like he's <laughs> writing off the rest of 19 man you so are you taking the rest of the the season off brother you going to a cancun what's going on it may feel like I've taken the first half of the season off, so we're, we're trying to do everything we can to, uh, you know, make make things happen the way they need to here at the end. Um, yeah, no, it, it's just 
that kind of sophomore slump that people talk about, I mean, I guess that's, that's a real thing. Cause it's like, you have enough experience where you start thinking about things in a certain way, instead of just taking whatever comes to you. And in a way you kind of get yourself in more trouble than that. You know, it, I look at it like Santino, you know, at Iowa, that's just being a rookie and looking at it from one perspective and blasting it off on the outside all night. Like it's just, you, you're very creative when you're seeing things for the first time. And, then when you come around the second time, you're trying to manipulate things more and in a way getting more in your own way. So we've just been trying to take a step back and just get back to driving, you know, how I was last year. And, and luckily, you know, I, I feel like we've done better with that. It's just uh, circumstances haven't been been too great. So, yeah, we're, we're trying to do whatever we can. I think uh, just figuring out how we can commu- communicate a little bit better and, uh, you know, build a little better product when it comes race time. I think I just heard you say your sophomore season would be going better if you were dumb or, um, but <laughs> it's, exactly what I said, but kidding aside <laughs> a bit, but it does sound like what you're saying is, you know, if anything, the, one of the enduring quote issues this year is maybe you have been overthinking things just a little bit, uh, coming yeah. off of what you learned last year. Yeah, I would agree completely because, you know, it you go from just reacting to predicting and, you know, sometimes you just need to shut the brain off and just go out there and, and drive the hell out of it and then you have a good night. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Ryan Terpstra, interesting question here. He says, nice run uh, Sunday morning, Zach. Uh, he says, what do you think contributes to the disparity in performance for the Andretti team uh, at Iowa, for example. He said, you and Alex, Alexander Rossi, seemed to head in different directions as the race rent went on, but your teammates Ryan hunter Ray uh, struggled, and Marco Andretti actually got black flagged. That is, it's a, that'd be lovely to explore a little bit, and I know you're not here to, you know, explain who did what and why in terms of setup, but we look at even Team Penske, though, right? They qualified, kicked everybody's butt in qualifying, looked like they were going to be strong early in the race. Then all of a sudden it wasn't. It was Joseph Newgarden's show, but he didn't necessarily have his wingmen uh, right behind him. Same thing at Andretti. Share with folks how that can happen. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's an awesome question. Thank you. I mean, um, to go into exactly what happened, I I can't tell you. Um, But uh, just for uh, contractual reasons. But we were all sitting in the trailer basically uh, before the race started and, you know, waiting out the rainstorm. And there was basically two little mini teams inside of Andretti at that time. So, you know, we luckily had a test at Iowa last year. So when we showed up for the race, we were all basically kind of digging the same car, the same balance. And then once we showed up this year, uh, I don't know if it was just the weather, but, you know, our package just wasn't as strong as it was the year before. So we really had to kind of change gears and punt in three different ways. All the cars kind of tried completely different setups to to find what they would like. And then Alex and I kind of migrated in one direction, and Ryan and Marco migrated. And we were sitting there joking that, you know, wherever we're at in the race, we're passing each other. We're going to know who chose Mm. the right answer, basically. And once we got kind of started, uh, it kind of just started going in that direction. I, I think just Marco and Ryan had a, a much difficult 
a much more difficult night than Alex and I did. And, you know, that's short track oval racing. It, it's really dependent on what you have under you. <clears throat> Apologies for all the beeps. I've got both Brian Barnhart calling and uh, a caseworker from the hospital. So once we're done here, I'm going to be making a lot of phone calls back to uh, <laughs> to awesome people. But I don't want to break the little fun we're having here. Uh, let's see. We're going to switch over. Didn't have a lot of questions on Twitter. Might tell us you're failing there. Need to fix that up. Just kidding. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> all right. So coming back to the topic of fuel leak, uh, Mark Pesky. I think I've possibly mangled your last name, Mark. Uh, if I have, tell me how to mangle it less. He says, fuel leak at Iowa. Nicely caught and repaired by the crew. Flames in the pits last year. Veach, what is your fascination with fire? <laughs> Man, I that was my thought process, actually, you know, because we rolled the car out to our pit box before we gridded it, and then when they were pushing the car from our pit box to our starting position, there was a puddle under the car, and of course, that always scares people, so somebody got down there and, and put their fingers in it and found out it was fuel, so we rushed things back, and basically, it was just where the car sat full of fuel that long, um, you know, not going anywhere. Uh, just fuel goes in places, you know, much like the uh, SR-71. So uh, luckily, they were able to fix it very, very quickly. And then they told me, don't worry, it's just from when the car was sitting there. As soon as you get on track and at speed, the leak is going to stop and it'll be fine. <laughs> and then I was like, huh <laughs> i've like, I've been to this movie before and then i literally told him i go if you guys set me on fire one more time i'm telling you <laughs> so that was in the back of my mind of okay am i gonna see flames behind me for the fifth time or or not but luckily everything was good <laughs> i think i believe i'm not again i believe it's the way this works if you do get set on fire one more time i believe that automatically casts you in the next fantastic four movie is johnny that'd Blaze. be awesome so I, I gotta do what I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there might be value in this, uh financially at least. Let's see. Let's go to Alan Bandy, one of my favorite topics. Wrote about it right at the beginning of your rookie year. Zach, coming from the world of tractor pulling, thanks to good old Roger Veach. If you had the opportunity to give it a whirl, which class would you want to do it in? Yeah, um, yeah, I actually talked about this a lot. You know, my dad, he's getting a chance to get back in a two-wheel drive truck for a couple of events uh, once the summer ends, and he's got a little more free time. So I'm really excited for him just to kind of get back to, you know, his big passion. Um, but what I would want to drive, it's kind of what my dad's dream has been as he's kind of been kicking the idea around. But, you know, a four- or five-engine mod, that would be that would be the coolest thing because obviously you got the most horsepower you know, the thing is just deafening and it seems like the most violent experience you'll ever have in your entire life. So, yeah, I'd, I want to go with a, a big mod. So we've spoken about this again many times before. I think every time you're on the show, we talk about pulling in some way. So, again, traditionally, you either have big American V8 iron, supercharged, crazy multiple engine, or you have diesel you know, just paint the, the sky black with, <laughs> with, with crazy uh, emissions and whatnot. Any thoughts? And have you genuinely ever raised the issue to your friends and engine suppliers at Honda Performance Development about, come on, you got to have like a V8 ridge line, <laughs> something we could stack five of those super quad turbo. Just saying, man, there might be some brand extension here. 
Yeah, that would be that'd be crazy. It would definitely change the dynamic of tractor pulling when you have a Honda guy, or in that case, four Honda guys plugged into each engine before it goes on track, <laughs> staring at their computer, going, "Yep, she's good." <laughs> you know, that would be really popular in the heartland as Zach Beach rolls uh, totally. up with freaking Hondas. Yeah, okay, uh, that's a funny looking bow tie logo. It kind of melted a little bit. Uh, yeah. Oh Lord. Uh, let's see. Uh, where should we go next? Uh, why don't we? Man, again, I'm having to choose from uh, a lot of fun things here. Why don't we go with Rob Ball, who says, Zach, with Mid-Ohio being your home race, is this race week and the weekend busier for you than the others? And he says, do sponsor obligations and extra attention away from the track take away from your preparation for Sunday's event? It's a really good one on mindset, right? Because a lot of what we've spoken about about your sophomore season hasn't been about – camber shims and ride height it's been mental approach yeah no that's also a great question i mean i I appreciate people looking at it that way because um you're absolutely right i mean um it's not so much added pressure or anything it's just there's a lot more workload as far as uh just engagements in a way um you know and and not in a bad way it's something that I'm, i'm happy to you know see my all my family and obviously my hometown supporters it's just it's so cool that they come out in, in such numbers that, you know, you're, you're just really busy just seeing everyone all weekend, which is is cool to, to do well there because, you know, it's firsthand experience for everyone. So I'm looking forward to it. I don't drive over till Thursday morning. So luckily I have proper amount of time home to kind of do all of my prep for Mid-Ohio. I'll be in the shop for a couple hours tomorrow with my engineer. Um, and then, yeah, just drive over Thursday morning. So. This is kind of my favorite part of the season, all the Midwest races, if you kind of count Toronto. But, you know, it's just it's in the heartland of where I grew up and of American racing. And it's just cool to be close to everything. Of the, I guess, the many things, but the one main thing that saddens me about not being there this weekend is looking back to last year and the Friday end of day podcast live podcast we did in victory lane the all ohio lineup with you graham bray hall michael shank that was just a lot of fun and it was so cool to see your people truly your people uh come out you know i don't know what we had 7500 people just come on out bring a lawn chair and i thought we had a lot of fun so i'm bummed we can't do that again this year but uh, i'm bound and determined to be back so we can do it again next year for sure, man. And and that's the thing. It's just the people make that race what it is. I mean, when you break into turn four and turn and, and head up to turn five, you see just the color, you know, T-shirts just lining the entire uh, hillside. It, it makes you feel like you're doing something that's, you know, pretty special, what you are. All right. Well, we're going to keep this a little bit of a, a shorter episode. We've got a couple, or I should say, a number of questions that are on similar themes. So, if you haven't heard me call out your name specifically, it's just because I chose someone else's that was similar. Let's go to Jameen Tuttle, who says, Zach, how much, if any, pressure does it add to you in year two to see rookies like Santino Ferrucci and Colton Herta come in so strong? And he says, great run last weekend. Hope the rest of your year is a big swing in a positive direction. So you feel in the heat from those other young punks? Uh, well, thanks, man. Uh, you know, I mean, 
I think the the right amount, right? I think everyone's feeling pressure about anybody new. Um, but, you know, you look at what they're doing, and in a way you applaud it because you just know how hard that it is. And uh, just the way that it's going, all the young guys were kind of coming in and figuring things out a little quicker than exactly before. So, yeah, I think it's really cool. I mean, Colton is awesome. I've got to spend a lot of time with with him and he's you know, horrible he's the him. worst don't yeah, say he, nice things he, about he him sucks. no talent um, no personality i tell you sooner that kid leaves know, the better and honestly I, I didn't know much about santino until he came over and you know it's just, it's just a, a good group of guys i mean it's they race really hard just like i've raced against spencer pickett and sage and all those guys it's just it's a, a different click that's coming in and yeah they're they're killing it you know, I just read a question sent in by some guy named M. Pruitt. Actually, just fell into my brain, so I'll go ahead and ask this. So, when your deal was announced at Sonoma a couple of years ago, and I also love the fact that Robin and I had broken every single piece of news I think that Michael Andretti had in terms of IndyCar all year long, and it was pissing him off so much that although you and I had spoken about this many times and you'd given some really good non-answer answers as you needed to, uh, when it was all finally confirmed, uh, when we were there, I think everybody had just left and Michael was like, didn't get that one. Did you? And his eyes were just like red with rage, but also joy. Um, I just mentioned that for no reason. I love it when folks give me a hard time. So good on Michael. So well, you're we'll see, the, the thing is, I appreciate, you know, that you're one of the few that you can tell kind of that play and have trust that, you know, you're not going to wake up next morning and have your heart sink thinking, oh, man, what did I do? Well, I have been <laughs> spilling the beans on your, your quote, fish tanker hobby. How did I come yeah. up with that? That's the dumbest thing ever. But uh, hopefully folks will give me a hard uh, time about a that. I saltwater too. fish keeper, I think. Okay. Is how, yeah. Uh, is that right? Is there the a magazine? Do you subscribe to anything that makes you? Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, like Coral Monthly. Yeah. Coral, that's a thing. I don't even I've know. Heard- I've heard people call it fish husbandry, and that just doesn't sound <laughs> – that does not make me feel good about myself. So, yeah, fish keeping. Yeah, <laughs> the fish are smiling in Veach's household. Um, <laughs> all right. We're going to try and get back on track. So this, as we've mentioned, your sophomore year, this was announced as a three-year deal with the Group 1000 Gainbridge uh, group and such. Where do you, how do you, when do you start the, and so this has been awesome, and this three-year deal is amazing, but obviously I don't want to wait until this time next year with a, you know, a month and a half left in this contract to not only obviously want, I would believe, want to return to Andretti Autosport, but also possibly create an extension uh, with your sponsors to facilitate that wouldn't ask you about dollars and cents and all that, obviously, but where does this process of making sure this isn't Zach Veach's three-year IndyCar career that came and went, but start talking to all the right people and sponsors to make sure that hopefully a next contract is at least being thought about or developed? Yeah, no, I, I think that's something that you have to think about, especially when you're a driver. You know, you, you always want to keep things going. Um, you know, I'm very, very fortunate to have the group that I do with Gainbridge. I mean, uh, Dan Towers, the, the head of it all there, and, and honestly, he's quickly become one of my best friends that I've had. It's 
seems to be very, very happy with things that we've done on and off the track. And, you know, obviously we're always working to improve that and, and get things bigger. Um, but yeah, I mean, as of right now, I, I think we'll just see, you know, it hasn't really been something that we brought up just because we're focusing on this year. And of course we got next year set already. Um, but yeah, it, it's a conversation that will be coming up before long and, you know, I feel good about that. So we'll see, you know, it's just one of those things we haven't really put much thought in. We're just uh, working on what we can control now. So when the time does come, it's a, an easy decision. If you want help negotiating, I, you know, I'm just thinking immediately a 15 year contract, you know, <laughs> start there. Michael might want to whittle that down a little bit, but you know, there's some other guy like Rossi. I don't know if you heard of him. Some guy, Alro, I think, re- yeah, reportedly. I uh, someone texts me with that name occasionally. I just, yeah, <laughs> uh, there uh, there could be some news coming here about whether that guy's in your team. Uh, I hear he's he's a real problem, uh, and also <laughs> some old guy. Like I hear he's like Grandpa America or Captain Grandpa America. Ryan Hunter <laughs> Ray might be hanging around. Does he like fishing? Yeah, you I see. Got- he likes killing the fish that you want to keep. So that's another reason to get that clown out of the team. So You know, I, I have no idea how things are going to turn out. I mean, that's just, just honest. But, you know, just from a, a personal standpoint, I mean, working with Ryan and Marco and Alex has been, been awesome. And, you know, you, you can't control those things, but I would like to not see, you know, any of our lineup change just because it's so much fun with those guys. But, you know, it's something that I guess we'll all find out about in time. I think we might have, and I'm so sad it just occurred to me right now, we might have hashtag Survivor Andretti going on here because with Rossi as a free agent, Hunter Ray as a free agent, Marco definitely questions as to whether, you know, this whole IndyCar experiment uh, needs to continue. I don't know, man. You might be getting the, the whatever, the staff of not getting voted off the island or whatever the hell they call it on that show. So just <laughs> well, saying. We did- do one big question out of the four of us who do you think would survive longest on an island and you know uh i told alex about our big hikes and how you have to you know dig a hole for certain things and he was immediately out and i mean ryan he can drive a boat so i guess he kind of counts but i think i would survive on an island so i'll I'll take that (laughs) yeah yeah marco would survive on an island uh as long as he could use a helicopter i think Uh, and there's some place to drive his lamborghini all right, let's let's close the show. A little bit of an abbreviated visit uh, for us, but let's close with Nathan Cook, who says, Marshall and Zach, with the awesome show IndyCar put on under the lights this weekend, would you like to see more night races on the calendar? And if so, where? So, hmm, right? I don't know how. I okay. mean, I don't know how many you've had a, a chance to do, but I know you're a guy that thinks about this kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. I, I feel every oval race, with the exception of Indy, should be a night race, just because being under the lights, it makes you feel like you're just a part of one of the biggest shows in the world. It's so cool. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if many people talk about this, but as a driver, you have like little things that like get you really excited that you love about the sport. And next time you're watching an oval race at night, watch the shadow of the car that's always about three feet ahead of the car from the lights on the infield. So it's like one of my favorite things. You come out of the corner and you constantly see yourself being like projected like you're chasing it, which is fun. Um, but races, I mean, Milwaukee Mile, bring that back. Make it a night race. That would be amazing. Uh, Fontana, 
it put on a really good show. I mean, I just think, you know, it was in the heat of the day and not a lot of people wanted to experience that. Um, you know, at Texas, I love it. I think we should always keep coming back to Texas. Some people tell me Richmond's really cool, so don't really know about that, but uh, that would be fun. Yeah, just the classics. That'd be really cool. Richmond, the site of the one and only IndyCar pole in Marshall Pruitt's not too long, not particularly <laughs> illustrious career uh, on the IndyCar team and crew side as an assistant engineer in so 2001. We'll have, have to talk if that comes up. Yes, I look, I've got all the – I can tell you this. If we go back to Richmond and they decide everyone is racing 2001 Delara Oldsmobiles, <laughs> I got you covered. I still got the setup sheets. Um, Perfect, thanks, man. <laughs> you know, granted, it was Jacques Lazier driving for Sam Schmidt uh, Motorsports at the time, so I'm not sure all that's going to transfer the way we want. But, uh, yeah, the sight of, of at least one mild success in my IndyCar career. Well, happy for you, man. Obviously hoping that the good run last weekend continues at home. Wish I could be there to see it, but nonetheless, yeah. thanks for always making time for us and also just bringing fun. You know, realize that what you do between the checkered, between the green and checkered flag is very serious, but the rest, man, just appreciate that you're not only always willing to connect with fans, but just trying to have a little bit of fun too. Yeah, of course, buddy. No, it's that's why you got to enjoy your life outside of everything else. And you know, it's just been such a fun, fun couple of years that it's been. And of course, we're all thinking about you guys too, man. Hope everything's going well, and we look forward to having you both at racetrack again sometime soon. Amen to that. Go kick some butt, Zach Veach, and I look forward to speaking soon. Well, we like winners on the weekend Indy car, especially road to Indy winners. We have yet another one this week making his first appearance on the show, USF 2000's Darren Keene. How are you, my man? I'm great. Thanks, Marshall. Uh, great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So you had some pretty fun headlines to write following Toronto in the USF 2000 series. For someone like yourself who wants to do nothing but use the road to Indy for everything it's capable of doing, getting you from the start here, USF 2000, to get into Indy Pro 2000, Indy Lights, Indy Car. Tell us about how a weekend like Toronto can be so helpful, and tell us a little bit about your team as well, because, boy, you have uh, one of the, the, quote, powerhouses of Junior Open Wheel behind you as well. Yeah, so Toronto was an amazing weekend uh, for me and Kate Motorsports. Uh, I, I was never out of the top two all weekend, which is just amazing. And um, for me, it was just a breakthrough weekend in my career, I feel like. Uh, I've done pretty well in uh, some other races this season, a couple of podium, uh, a couple of podiums. But, you know, Toronto, for me... Uh, I've been, in my opinion, it's like the birth or the rebirth of my championship race. Uh, I feel like I'm back in it or at least I'm closer than before and I'm just super motivated to keep going. As far as what it can do for me in the road to Indy, um, it was just great exposure for myself and the team and more than anything else, I think it was just a confidence booster to, 
help me go out there and get some more race wins before the end of the season. And uh, if all goes well, I'll be racing Pro Mazda next year. We're not going to find you for the Pro Mazda reference, uh, but it's oh, all good. I'm so sorry. No, yep. no, no. It's okay. You know, Dan Anderson might make you do like 50 push-ups or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but hey, our friends at Mazda really helped make this ladder what it is. Uh, so th- there's no foul there. Darren, let's talk a little bit about your coming into the road to Indy. I mean, a kid coming out of Florida. Lots of talent coming out of Florida. Karting in particular is massive in Florida. For those who don't know a little bit about your background and how we got you into the road to Indy, just share a little bit about life coming up. I mean, granted, when I say life, you're still a pup. But tell us about, you know, the the formative stages of Darren Keene before you got to USF 2000. So I've been racing karts since I was six, and... I, I still love it. I was karting last week, uh, driving with my coach, Oz Negri, uh, just for some fun, some fitness. Um, I think karting's amazing. But He is, uh, by yeah. the way, I don't know if you knew this, in the Guinness Book of World Records, Oz Negri is listed as the greatest human being ever. Also yeah, the he, nicest human being ever. For sure. He, he's an unbelievable guy. And uh, honestly, I can't thank him enough for all that he's done for me. Um, I don't think I'd be where I am today without his help and mentorship. So he's just an amazing guy. Um, but uh, back to karting. I, um, from probably 6 to 11 or 6 to 10, it was just messing around. It was really cool for me because my dad used to kart and my uncle used to kart. So it was uh, a big family ordeal, which was just a lot of fun. And then when I was around 10 or 11, I started to take it more serious. And that's when my dad stepped aside and my uncle was doing something else um, at that point. But um, from basically like 10 slash 11 to when I was 16, um, I did all the national races, uh, mostly in Rotax. And then I would do uh, the Super Nationals at the end of uh, the year in uh, tag. But uh, yeah, it was just a great experience. Um, I moved to Europe for two years or a year and a half technically uh, to race in the British Championship for Rotax and the Euromax Championship for Rotax. So that was just uh, another great experience. And um, I think England just really helped me, uh, not only in driving, but just uh, to get another um, place, you know, under my books and uh, just learn more about some other parts of the world and how other people act and stuff like that. I think it was just uh, mind-opening and uh, it was good. It was a really fun time. Um, I really, really look back on my days in karting with some, you know, amazing memories. And it was definitely like some of the best years of my life to date. Let's talk a little bit about this season so far for you and with everything that has developed in USF 2000. We had Braden Eves, obviously, uh, if we're looking at just, you know, really strong initiatives and such. We've had a couple of names pop up. I'm really glad that you're starting to assert your name more uh, as well, Darren. But tell me about the caliber of competition, right? You Unfortunately, you weren't able to sweep the weekend in Toronto, right? I mean, it's, it's there's some real, real competition going on at what we would say the first step on the ladder, but that's, to me, kind of awesome. Tell us about some of the folks you're having a fight with to get these results. Yeah, the, the competition is amazing, honestly. Um, it's the closest competition I've 
um, have to deal with in open wheel cars for sure. Um, the racing's always extremely close. Um, I'm not sure if you uh, were paying close attention to Road America in race two, but we had a five car battle for the lead for probably like the first five laps and everyone was involved and it's just super close. Um, Paps have definitely um, got a little stronger in these like past few races. Um, so they're a Colin and Hunter. So those are two cars that are always in the mix. Um, myself and Braden are normally up there in the mix. So that's four cars. And then Christian, um, he's up there too. So it's, for me, it's always like between those, uh, five cars and it's super close between us. Uh, Christian and I were, um, pretty much doing the same times every lap at Toronto. And, uh, you know, it was just fun. It's really fun to race closely. Um, none of the drivers really want to go out there and, uh, you know, race on their own for 30 minutes. And I think the fact that the competition is so close, it just makes good results feel even better, you know? So Darren, let's get into what you were just coming out of before our call. And then we'll get to the couple of questions that came in for you. But I love the fact that here you are very early in your open wheel career and even you like indycar drivers formula one nascar you name it what is it that you just finished doing before we started this call um i just finished a two-hour session at the sim for the weekend <laughs> to come and that's i'm guessing for those who don't know uh, this isn't something that you are unfamiliar with or young drivers like yourself are from unfamiliar with Life spent, days spent, hours spent in a racing simulator, even for someone who's, you know, high school age, that's become, frankly, just part of the routine compared to only something that's reserved as it once was uh, for the upper, upper echelons of the sport. For sure. It's a lot more um, easily accessible now for young drivers, especially with... Um you know, companies like iRacing, they, they just uh, really help us learn the tracks and learn some techniques. And it's always cool to practice stuff on the sim because there's no consequences. Um, so that's just really nice. Today, I was especially happy. We were just working on some new techniques um, to help me for this weekend. And I felt like I learned a lot. So I'm pretty happy leaving the sim today. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's um, it's really important personally I haven't been much of a sim guy uh, in the past. Usually, I would do it uh, the first time I would visit a new track. So I'd go to the sim first, so I'd get to the track with a good idea of where I'm going. Um, but now, since um, I'm just a little more motivated after uh, last weekend at Toronto, I used the sim there. Um, I used it because it was a street race. I haven't had that much time on it compared to other tracks and we really just felt that uh, it sharpened me before the weekend, and we're going to continue to do uh, use the sim for every track, uh, every race weekend or race weekend now, and uh, just try and get into the weekend with some uh, extra speed. Let's get to the couple of questions that have come in here. One of them, a little bit out of left field, but hey, you know they don't always come straight down the pipe. This comes in from Eli Hoopengarner, who says, Darren, do you ever trail break? So let's talk about breaking styles and if and what you 
might happen to do naturally? So what I do naturally is probably trail break a tiny bit, but obviously it depends on the corner. But let's say I have a hairpin. Um, Obviously, I'll get up like huge pressure and I'll start to trail break in and probably a little before the apex. Ideally, I would want to be off the brakes and try and roll speed into the corner because you get a lot of time through that. But uh, like I said, it depends on the corner. If it's a fast corner like mid-Ohio in turn one, you don't want to trail break because you'll have too much weight on the nose. And then when it comes to turning, you'll probably get oversteer. Trail breaking, which I should have explained for those who are learning all the little facets of motor racing, is using the brake pedal not just to slow the car in a straight line, but also continuing to use it to modulate it sometimes to actually help set the nose of the car and or help rotate the rear a little bit. So as Darren mentioned, on a street course and a hairpin, trail braking can be your friend. In a big, fast, flowing corner like Turn 1 at Mid-Ohio, it could be the perfect tool to use if you wanted to meet corner workers in Turn 1 because <laughs> you'll be in the barriers uh, sure. pretty heavily most of the time. Uh, let's go to... A, a definite friend of the road to Indy, uh, Alicia Hodap. Obviously, she and Rob Howden, huge, huge proponents of young open-wheel talent. Alicia says, Darren, now that you have your first win, finally taken care of, what are your goals for the rest of the season? And says, congrats on that first win. Super, super happy for you. So the goals for the rest of the season – um, there, it's basically the same, you know, uh, I think the win is a great tool for my confidence, but at the same time, I'm trying to focus on the process that got me there, not the results. So I'm just going out to mid Ohio. I'm going to do the best I can and hopefully, um, we get some good results. Uh, the main thing for me is to get six clean races for the rest of the season. Unfortunately, at the beginning of the season, um, a couple things went wrong and I had some average results. So I'm just trying to keep everything clean and do the best I can, and hopefully the results will come. Going to save our final, my favorite question for our last question. Comes in from our pal Michael Goodyear. He says, Darren, firstly, massive congratulations on your excellent weekend at Toronto. As someone who recently started following your career, I'm pleased to have been able to watch the first of what I expect to be many wins from a future star. Michael says, I read somewhere that you are pursuing a degree in engineering at the University of Florida, which is massively impressive and will undoubtedly help you as you gain firsthand experience setting up a car to combine with the formal education. And he asks, what made you decide to take this path and do both university and racing at the same time? And do you think... Uh, Do you think teams have been more welcoming to having you drive for them, knowing you have an engineering, uh, hopefully, degree on the horizon and knowledge, as well as racing experience? So initially, my thought process to do both was to have a plan B or some sort of backup plan if racing didn't work out. Um, I didn't want to be, you know, stuck at 22 or 23, kind of wondering what I do next if racing didn't work out for me. And as far as why I picked engineering, uh, naturally, I've just really enjoyed um, math and physics. I I loved math and physics in high school, and I figured that that would be 
the most or the majority of my work uh, as an engineering student in uh, the University of Florida. Um, I haven't actually like at the moment. I just finished my freshman year, so I only did prereqs like calculus, um, all that fun stuff, and uh, I haven't really learned that much about um, you know the engineering side of things. It's just basically the math that I will use for that stuff at the moment. But um, I definitely think that it'll help me. And obviously, um, as it was mentioned, it would definitely um, like the mindset was it would definitely help me to understand what was going on with the car and help the setup for my engineers. And then lastly, I think that the teams definitely appreciate what I'm doing. Um, you know, racing is a super time consuming sport as well as trying to get a degree. So I think it just shows um, high commitment and, you know, the ability to try and learn new things and be open-minded. You know, um, I just think it, uh, it'll it stand to me whether I'm racing in the future or if racing doesn't work out. I love the fact that you, despite still being very young, have put together that being an excellent race car driver, that is the gift. Being an extremely intelligent person who has educated himself and has created lifelong opportunities completely independent from motor racing, that's your duty. <laughs> One's awesome. We all hope you have a long and amazing career as a race car driver. But the fact that you on your own, now I don't think out of fear, what if it doesn't work out, but just, hey, this would be smart. Just being the guy who does the, uh, what, the uh, the gym tan laundry routine every day between <laughs> driving race cars, um, that's going to lead you to being poor and really, truly miserable once the racing thing stops. And I, I wish more young drivers like yourself realize that you know what i do have a lot of time of the day and being the person who is going after some sort of higher education making myself better and more than just a race car driver that's actually a really good thing so thanks to michael for asking that but also good on you darren for making sure that you're not being that one trick uh that one trick pony here that can only do one thing and really is left wondering what to do with himself if and when the racing career ends. So uh, I, I truly hope more folks wanting to follow in your footsteps realize that, aha, don't just do one, do both. Because if you're lucky, both pay off. <laughs> for sure. Both pay off for you. Thank you, my man. Really happy to have had you here uh, on the Weekend IndyCar for the first time. And as I always say, I'm very hopeful we will have you on more in the future and look forward to seeing how those clean races go for you to round out the season and where you end up on the road to Indy at the end of 2019. Thank you so much, Marshall. I appreciate it. Um, thanks again for having me here. It's a, it's a great show, and I've, I've been trying to get on here for a while, so it's, uh, it's a pretty cool thing. Well, winning makes it really easy. It's hard to deny, right? I mean, yep. <laughs> I, still, though, I don't know how I get on here each week because I'm not winning a darn thing, but at least I cover myself off with folks like you. Darren, thanks again, man, and I look forward to speaking soon. Thank you so much, Marshall. Have a good one. 
All right, let's get going with your questions, starting with our man Jordan Darwin, who says, MP, what is the logic for running Iowa so late? All I could figure was NBC did not have a good spot for IndyCar on Sunday, but it was late in the central time zone, and I did feel bad for fans in the eastern time zone locations. I think there's just a couple of basic things that came together here, Jordan. The most obvious one is everyone's already at the track. There was definitely a desire to get the race in. I checked with one friend in the series there, and that's exactly how he positioned it. We're here. We are ready to go. We're just waiting on Mother Nature. And I think it ended up working to their favor, at least here on the West Coast. Uh, We had, granted, it was even a little bit late here, but still had a bit of a primetime IndyCar race. And I guess in the most basic sense, coming back to the TV side, knowing that this is actually the first point of contact made when these questions come up, not just, hey, it's raining, do you think we can get the race in uh, within the organization, running everything at the track on the IndyCar side, but moreover, oh, and we have a broadcast partner, hey, what works for you? Do you have windows tomorrow? Is there anything that can be bumped or since we're already here and can probably shuffle some things without throwing off other major sporting events. Since again, with the time in in note here, Jordan, I don't think that there was a lot in terms of big live events that IndyCar would have been intruding upon in trying to get this done much later Saturday night than uh, had they tried to wedge themselves into things that were already pre-planned on Sunday. So yeah, just making the best out of a situation that was about as polar opposite as you can be from a thousand trillion degrees uh, the day before to thunderstorms and rain and insanity the following. So uh, I actually thought it worked out well, and I hope that IndyCar, Iowa, and NBC realize going forward they really do need to make this a permanent night race. Andy Bauer says, MP, any update on Dragon Speed? Thank you for asking that, Andy, because it reminded me to reach out to team owner, team principal Elton Julian, and he said, been trying to get through a couple of uh, infrastructure procedural things on their end. Nothing bad, nothing anything, just got to clean up a couple of things on their end, and they're hoping to get back out. They really want to make the upcoming quote rookie test at gateway here i believe august 1st where felix rosenquist and marcus erickson will be running so that's a big goal for them to run with ben hanley not sure he wasn't sure if they're going to be able to get that done uh, and get there and do that Uh, but their ambition is to run gateway next stephen killsdonk says mp you spoke last week about the challenges that may face robert wickens when he decides to drive indie cars again one aspect that he has brought up on several occasions is that a brake pressure required to operate an indie car at its full potential uh could there be some quote power brakes solution or should robert start building up zanardi like popeye arms to operate a brake lever with his hands raised great individual topic here Stephen, in what might happen for robert 
from the standpoint of yes compared to a pro mazda like michael johnson drove uh, michael being um only being abled with his hands uh yes both cars downforce cars and and have a lot of uh braking capabilities but the massive downforce and tires and speed all involved with an indie car really pushing into a different realm i think this would probably be the one major area that does not have an immediate solution Stephen. that would have to be explored so we know that in zanardi's bmw m8 gte the solution was to do as you mentioned a big old uh, handbrake honestly the size of what you would see in one of ken blocks uh, hooning mobiles to help lock the rears and do spin slides donuts whatever um don't have that space in an indie car um so that's i don't think that would be much of a solution which just leads me to believe we would be talking about some sort of servo assisted uh, electrical hydraulic something on board that helps to generate the wicked amount of force normally reserved or normally created through one's leg that's the only thing that comes to mind here uh, to do this and very likely using a similar ring type situation there would have to be something on board that generated the that you know more or less all of those forces on demand that robert could then use uh, through his hands to operate go to ben go ben cohen ben Cohen. good lord guys i'm sorry uh <laughs> it's early Ben Cohen, MP2 Things. I'm going to Mid-Ohio for the first time on Sunday. That's great to hear. Any sections of the track you'd recommend watching the start from? He says, second, would love your perspective on what a team goes through when put into a situation like your guest this week was put in when they found a leaking fuel line on the grid. Do teams prepare for scenarios like that? As always, appreciate your insight and continued positivity being sent your family's way. Thank you, Ben Cohen. Not going. Um, although Ben Cohen is going to Mid-Ohio. Sorry, couldn't resist. Viewing the start. Hmm, that's a really good one. So there is the grandstand. Or there are grandstands on the left. Uh, knowing that they start the race uh, on the back side of the circuit, there are grandstands on the what would be driver's left as they head down the hill into the braking zone. I've never been there uh, in those grandstands, so I can't tell you if they are a quality thing. I can't tell you, however, that driver's right on the inside, which is usually packed with people, that hill would definitely be something to consider. Uh, you could go lower down the hill. Uh, I guess closer to the right-hander where everyone is breaking into and then making that right and heading up the little short little blast up the hill, then the left looping over it. Just from a viewing standpoint, I like the top of the hill where they're kind of sort of apexing over it, but down just a little bit because you can see a lot of stuff going on there. So I might look at something in that general range, Ben, higher up higher atop the hill because you can indeed see them coming down into the braking zone turning right coming straight at you then making that left to go over the hill then down the hill then right and away so you can see a lot from that complex and also with mid ohio just being really super extra beautiful i'm sure you're already planning to do this but bring a backpack 
bring some sort of folding chair that's not too heavy you know bring your your water and food and the sunscreen and all of that but it is a walking touring facility and there are some awesome vantage points from all over and so what i would hope uh, if you're just going to be there on sunday hopefully in time to catch uh, all kinds of other great action going on there too just look at it think of it and treat it like a cool going to be here for 15 minutes enjoying that then i'm going to walk for three minutes and enjoy another section it's not a huge facility so you can get to see most of it and i would just say mindset wise plan on walking touring and seeing lots because there's a lot of different things not only to see obviously but it's just really beautiful and you get to see the cars doing a lot of different things as you wander around to the various sections and if you're bringing a camera not your phone, but an actual little hold it with both hands and go clickety-click with a lens mounted on the end of it. There's a lot of great places to shoot as well. So you can come away with some uh, pretty good photos. Mid-Ohio is one of those tracks that makes photographers look better than they are. And I say that as a photographer who leaves every year for Mid-Ohio saying, thank you, Mid-Ohio. You make all my photos look amazing. So second question that's that's a really interesting one i think in terms of preparation it would not be a surprise to learn that indycar teams do this for noses wings suspension uh, a lot of these easily crunchable items hey just had three car crash and our guy got into it or our woman got into it and We need to repair this, that, and the other. I think the more consumable things, the things you would expect to happen most frequently in a crash, suspension damage, bodywork, front wing, rear wing, something along those lines, those are the things that most teams drill for. A rapid fuel cell leak repair would probably not be super high on the list for most teams. Some, I'm sure, would. I, it's a great question I would love to ask the IndyCar teams that are also involved in sports cars. Because, I, again, I haven't spoken to them yet, but I, if I were to, I think I'd find that most, like Penske that are, happen to be in IMSA, the Ganassi team, same thing, um, I think we'd find that they might actually get down to this level of granular planning and drilling because that is absolutely the kind of thing that sports car teams would do. Think through every little worst-case scenario, because at minimum, an IMSA race is 100 minutes, those being uh, the couple of street races. But by and large, the shortest IndyCar race on the calendar is 2 hours and 40 minutes, and you have the four others that are 6, 10, 12, and 24. So the mindset is prepare for the absolute worst and craziest things to happen that we need to repair to keep going. It's just a totally different mindset. So I wouldn't be surprised if those that play in both paddocks are ones that would have drilled down into things like this on the IndyCar side, just because it's a mindset absolutely practiced on the sports car side. Let's go to a couple questions here that are on similar wavelengths. 
one from our pal Jerry Sudduth. Sorry, I won't see you this weekend, Jerry, in mid-Ohio, and also Bob Fay. Jerry says, after watching IMSA at Lime Rock last weekend, I wonder if IndyCar going there would be feasible from strictly a racing standpoint. What do you think? Bob says, Marshall, I see someone else has asked again about maybe having IndyCar at my home track at Lime Rock. The obvious lack of runoff in some areas kind of puts a kibosh on that idea. But I remember you mentioning the idea of having the entire Road to Indy contingent race there. How can we make that happen? Bob also says, I can remember the Barber, uh, Saab, and Dodge days in the Formula Atlantics running with IMSA on Memorial Day weekend back in the 80s. I'm sure there are many fans here in Connecticut that would be very interested in the IndyCar ladder system at Lime Rock. Come on, Marshall, push this idea to the top of Jay Fry's list. Well, you know, one of the cool things about trying to do that, Bob, is Jay also has the ability to take that, move it to the top of his list, and push it right off the ledge into the garbage can. So for the both of you, yeah, I mean, I'd love to see it. I would love to see it. Someone sent in that question to Robin's mailbag this week as well. And uh, I think Robin said, I've never been there, but you have. So can you tell me, give me an answer? And I said, well, it would be a blast um, until the cars try to complete their first lap. And then they would get launched into outer space. (laughs) And some of them would still be coming down. Uh, the photos of IMSA GT cars, so of the two types of vehicles that compete in IMSA's top class, I'm sorry, top championship, the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, prototypes and GTs, the GTs are obviously the slowest. The photos of IMSA's slowest cars coming over at least one of the crests, possibly two of the crests, with two wheels off the ground, three I saw one that might, might have been four wheels off the ground, like Nürburgring old school style jumping through the air. That's what's taking place there with GT cars. <laughs> so imagine hundreds of more horsepower, uh, speed like never seen before. Um, yeah, we would just, you want to talk about celebrating Apollo 11, Yes, we would have a lot of IndyCars and IndyCar drivers currently floating through space after taking off from the Lime Rock launch pad. So an amazing facility. I love the place. It's, as Bob mentioned with runoff, it's old school, very old school. That's why it's loved. That's why I think, you know, even an Indy Lights car might be a little sketchy in terms of uh, flying around there, but some of the lower categories, I think, would be no issue whatsoever on the road to Indies. I'd love to see it. I just think it'd be great uh, for some of the kids to get to go to places that, while IndyCar might not, there's a great history there. And there's also, I think, some great things to learn. Sometimes going to tracks that you don't go to during your, you know, the big classes you're trying to get up into, you're going to learn stuff. There's definitely some awesome things out of Lime Rock at a Virginia International Raceway and a few others that would be uh, fun to consider. But, yeah, unless it's chicanes every 100 feet, I just can't see how cars would ever, ever stay on the ground there. Let's go to Scott Hodgins, who says, Marshall, could you give an example of how a B2B sponsorship would work for an IndyCar team? So, Scott, the one that comes to mind that I think might be the easiest uh, to explain, and I've probably used it before on the show, Back in the 2000s, 
it might have been later portion of the 2000s when this came together we had then andretti green racing what we call today andretti autosport that 711 on the uh, on one of their cars was a primary sponsor and there was a fresh fruit company and what they did is obviously tried to get their fresh fruit out to the masses and realize that hey <laughs> most people think of 711 for their name whatever thing you want to drink or eat or you know whatever run in there grab your thing head back out it's just kind of a quick dash place that you go in and out of all over the country though and most people think of it as a place you'd run into to get things but fresh fruit really not part of it so hey what if we actually tried to do that what if we tried to offer something that wasn't just chips in a bag or some little gnarly burnt up curled up taquito or whatever under the heat lamp the desire for the fresh fruit company to really try and massively expand their business model by having their products in this massive chain throughout the u.s that is a ripe business to business opportunity to create and so if you think about the andretti team being the conduit of saying hey we have the ceo of 7-eleven we have the ceo of this fruit company how can we bring them together so they can do business they will both profit from this and as being the conduit for that we will benefit from that too because we are in effect the middlemen and middle women creating this so when i think of b2b i think more broker i think middleman middlewoman someone who is you know the realtor <laughs> between you and the person you're buying the house from um, they are the person helping to create relationships. Obviously, if you're buying the house, you're probably not profiting so much. You will in the future, I guess, if you own the thing. But uh, it's just a case of trying to bring businesses together, finding ways where the two of them can actually prosper and benefit from forming a new union. And in the Andretti model, which has really become almost the industry-wide model, it is finding ways then for the team to profit from that. And so the the quick wrap to this, Scott, is the interesting thing is you talk to some of the teams, many of the teams honestly engaged in serious B2B sponsorship deals, and they will tell you, not so much on the record all the time, but when you see a major company or even a smaller company, but one that you're not totally familiar with on the car, there's often not a lot to do with promoting that company itself in motor racing, meaning I'm just using this as a generic example, but the 7-Eleven relationship. Yeah, it's great for folks to see 7-Eleven on the car, want to go to 7-Eleven and buy things. The company then obviously generates profit off of those sales. But if we're looking at the cost involved to participate in IndyCar, and what is really being returned from it, it's not so much the consumer side. Hey, I saw it on the car. I went there and bought the thing, and boy, the company benefits. It's, yeah, this is actually all paid for, actually, uh, all through this B2B relationship. The, the real value 
from the, the company side is the relationships and the profits that come from the relationships being developed behind the scenes in this B2B structure. The fact that we also get our name on the car, that's really cool. Hey, awesome. It's not even remotely the number one, two, or three priority in what's taking place, though. So that's the thing that I think has taken a lot of shifting mentally. Uh, And when you see a company on the car, are they there because they're trying to promote their existence and get you to buy their things, sign up for it, whatever? Or is that just the token, if you want to call it, and the real value they're getting is behind the scenes and i'll just throw in the you know another one too here so if we're i realize we're jumping across eras and such but if we're talking andretti autosport 7-eleven andretti autosport fresh fruit delivery a business deal struck for this fruit to be delivered daily to every 7-eleven store in the country well you got to get it there how do you do that well hey dhl that sure is a really good sponsor involved with the team. Again, I'm not saying that they did it. I'm just saying it's those kinds of things where you go, hey, DHL, we might have a deal for you where here's a contract to deliver to whatever the number is, 7-Eleven's 8 trillion stores. That is value once again brought back to a partner. And as the middleman receiving a, quote, cut, that's where that benefits the team as well. Let's stay in the Andretti world. Mike Jablo says, MP, what is going on with Marco Andretti's car? He was way off the pace. Uh, two of his best tracks, Indianapolis and last week at Iowa. Says, well, none of the Andretti cars had a great run at Iowa. Marco was called in for being so far off the pace. Was there a mechanical issue that caused his car to handle so poorly? Well, in theory, they're all mechanical issues that cause things to handle poorly or positively. Uh, the mechanical issue could be an excellent setup, or it could be a diabolical setup, or it could be a driver who is so finicky about setup that unless it's perfect, you are not going to get a lot out of that driver. Or it could be a driver who is shaken so easily that if the car does something that they don't like early in the race right away, they receive that as almost a call it a death threat. The car just tried to kill me and a belief sets in that it is a permanent thing. And if I try and push and get close to where I just was, that same dynamic is going to happen. So in the name of self-preservation, I'd better dial things back, and we're not going to be competitive today. The latter scenario might be the closest thing to an answer here, Mike. We'll throw this in. I feel like I've said this before this year. Uh, if I haven't, then it's just my brain talking. Uh, silly again. Marco is a young engineer, a rookie engineer uh, named Mark Bryant on his car. This is a kid who won the Indy Lights Championship with Pato Award last year. This is the kid who engineered Pato at Sonoma, where he qualified fifth and finished eighth. So, young Kiwi, super talented. I look at him like I do a Felix Rosenquist, 
Santino, Ferrucci, Colton Herta among race engineers. Wow. Vast potential. Really hope things go well in his formative years in race engineering, because if they do, he could be right up there with a David Faustino, Ben Bretzman, Chris Simmons, Craig Hampson. Super, super high, high talent here. And my biggest concern coming into the year was he was originally supposed to be at Harding Steinbrenner Racing with Pato. Um, that was the original plan that I heard. When things went sideways with Pato in terms of HSR, uh, he, again, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe uh, he was then reassigned to Marco's car. Uh, Marco's former engineer, Nathan O'Rourke, is now working with Colton Herta. Um, how should I put this? Nathan, while working with Marco, didn't see a lot of them. There was not a lot of Nathan being expressed in the race results. Interesting move a very talented, very experienced guy like Nathan O'Rourke laterally out from under Marco's entry, move him over to Colton, and boom, <laughs> race win, pole position. Uh, I know Colton's obviously not had the best finishing record that he would want throughout the season, but in most instances, every race we've gone to, you have known Colton was there. Iowa might have been one of the only that comes to mind where he wasn't. But regardless, race engineer, proven, good, etc. Move him to a different driver and a team actually with fewer resources, even though it's still connected to Andretti Autosport, uh, which is uh, Nathan's employer. But you've just seen the difference of removing Nathan from beneath Marco, moving him beneath Colton, night and day difference. I am concerned for young Mr. Bryant that this has been a brutal year. And I know that he has a lot to learn as a rookie IndyCar race engineer, but I would suggest that if things had panned out at Harding Steinbrenner Racing and he had worked with Pato, or who knows, had he worked with Colton, we would have seen similarly impressive things happen as he was able to produce last year. I don't know what the deal is, Mike, with Marco. It's going to be one of those great mysteries of life whenever he retires. I have a great and deep affinity for Marco as a person. I also have seen him from his earliest uh, junior open wheel days, watched him up through Indy Lights into IndyCar, been there for his entire IndyCar career, uh, seen, I think, one, if not both of his wins, one for sure, um, have seen when everything goes well for him. I just know that with Marco, unfortunately, there is something within him that if the car does not feel right early in a race, if it does something that, quote, spooks him, you 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 almost lose the patient for the rest of the event and even if the car is not handling well even if it's doing things that you really don't like what's the thing that we talk about every year when it comes down to championships and how they are decided 
or those who either succeed in the championship or those who fall out and do not end up getting the title. It's how they manage the bad days. It's always that. It's so rarely a case where, oh, they won 100% of the races. It's, man, there were days where the car was diabolical. And what did you do? Did you give up? I mean, you stayed on track, but mentally you gave up? Or did you keep fighting? You're never happy. You're never comfortable, but you kept fighting. Throw this out just to, to wrap this on the Marco question, Mike. Talk about guys that had two very similar races in the beginning, but went in very different directions. You have the, not only Marco, but also my French fry, Mr. Sebastian Bourdais. Miserable, miserable. Car wouldn't do a thing that he wanted. I believe he went down a lap as well. I mean, it looked like his day was over early. Yet, he and Craig Hampson kept fighting, kept scrapping, although Seb was not happy in the car at all. He did he did not at any point in time surrender. And they ended up being able to get back on the lead lap. They ended up making the car better. Wasn't great, but better and came away from Iowa with a decent finish. Obviously, Seb is not in the championship hunt, at least, but he certainly is in the hunt for having the best finish possible. And so on a day where he was a lap qualified more or less last uh, for a good stretch of the race, was running like, what, P18 a lap down? I mean, miserable. You can just imagine Seb being the angriest guy possible. But just fathom that while he was being miserable, Marco was in the same vicinity with him in terms of where he was in the running order, just as miserable. And yet between the two, we have a guy who decided, no, I'm going to keep digging. I really have nothing to to play for here. We're not going to win. If I win this race, it's not going to vault me into the championship uh, picture. I mean, Seb's 10th right now in the standings. But he obviously knows that, look, my entire team put in crazy amounts of work. Team owners are out there busting their behinds to find sponsors to help pay for all of this. Those sponsors show up to the race, tune in on TV. They have high hopes that I'm going to deliver for them. So what do I do? I honor them with my effort and with my willingness to remain in a place mentally that I hate. But with every new lap, there's a new possibility things could get better. And so we're talking about Seb salvaging, starting more or less last, running a lap down 18th, just so far out of the competitive picture was never a factor. And then managed to claw his way up to ninth, which felt like a freaking victory. So realizing that while he isn't in the title hunt, that kind of mental fortitude in the ability to turn an 18th into a ninth, those are the things that will make a new garden, a Rossi, a Dixon, a name, all the ones who are, you know, kind of looking towards a title each year. It's that mental thing that allows them to be potential champions at all times. And then there are others 
who are never in the title hunt. And there's a lot of circumstances that can be applied to that reasoning, Mike. But there's usually a mental aspect as well, which cannot be overlooked. Nathan DeRover. Hey, Nathan. Says, Marshall, are we sure it's Santino Ferrucci in the Dale Coin car? Has anyone seen Thomas Schechter lately? I'm going to need convincing that Schechter isn't getting into the car when nobody's looking because I haven't seen anyone drive Buffalo Boy around the outside like that since about 2007. Never take your eyes off the 19 car on an oval. Yeah. Uh, boy, this YouTube era is pretty awesome, Nathan, because I would have to say that for young drivers like Santino, who might not even know Schechter or have known to go back that far to look at Thomas just truly having a lane of his own seemingly on ovals to go blowing by people. Man, there sure is some really amazing footage of Alexander Rossi doing it in the last year or two and Oriol Servia, and you go back a little bit farther, Tony Kanaan, I am very, very confident that in addition to his own natural sensibilities, despite being an oval rookie, I'm fairly confident Santino has done some of his homework. His engineers have said, hey, you know, you might just take a look at how some of these other drivers view the circuit uh, and put that all together. You have a kid who's, continuing to create shock and awe i'm not saying from a and he's going to win a race this year standpoint but what were people's expectations of santino coming into 2019 sure as heck wasn't this (laughs) it wasn't mine at all i expected him to be good on road courses and street courses I mean, he's sitting 12th in points right now. You know, I mean, come on. Uh, he's, what, 14 points, I believe, Rosenquist, who's now leading the, uh, the, the rookie hunt, who's in 11th. So they're right there next to one another in the points. Um, Santino, as well, is 14, beho- 14 points behind his teammate, Sebastian Bourdais. Seb and Felix are tied at 255. I mean, that that's just something, right? Um, the big thing I would say, Nathan, and this is oval, this is every form of, of circuit we've gone to, the, the key thing that jumps out to me talent-wise from Santino, beyond the normal of knowing how to steer and brake and do all that kind of fun stuff, he is massively unaffected by the vehicle and it doing things that he doesn't really like. His ability to drive through things and just ignore them and go very quickly, it's a real, real thing, and it's a real talent. We talk about that with Dixon for sure. Um, Rossi can do it too. All the best, all of the best, truly the best. That's an attribute that they have. All right, kind of piggybacking on the same thing we spoke about with Marco. There are going to be days where that car is just not doing the thing. Whatever that thing is you need, it's not doing it. There are drivers who are massively affected by that and fall out of the competitive window. You kind of forget they're in the race. Santino's just shown, at least as a rookie, "Ah, really, it's doing that. All right, well, that sucks. I'm not going to win. Uh, I'm not going to be able to turn the fastest laps possible, but I can still go pretty darn fast. And 
that's really been highlighted as a difference between himself and his veteran four-time champ car champion teammate, Sebastian Bourdais. Seb, even though I just mentioned he had this amazing fight uh, to rally back to ninth, Seb is very, very prone to having poor qualifyings in particular when the car is not feeling super, super the way that he wants. In the race, again, we've seen his ability to rally back. It's been a surprise, though. Santino, just on a day where it seems like Seb is really struggling a lot, Santino is often not in that place. Obviously, he was a monster to open the race, Nathan. Things went off a little bit towards the end of the race, handling-wise. Wasn't able to capitalize on that early potential. All the silly passes that he made that were amazing. But, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know what to expect from him coming into the year. And his team raves about him, just personality-wise, uh, mindset from driving standpoint. Just they're really, really happy with young Santino Ferrucci. And if this kid's running P12 right now in the championship uh, and has been floating, you know, in or around this kind of midfield area as a rook with Dale Coin Racing. I mean, keep in mind he's currently ahead of. Um, Spencer Piggott in 13th, Colton Hurd in 14th, Marcus Erickson. Then we have Marco Andretti, Zach Veach, Tony Kanon, Mateus Laced, Ed Jones. You realize that Ed hasn't done all the, uh, all the races this year, so um, obviously he would have lost points by not doing those. But, yeah, there's something here. I can't tell you whether Santino is a future IndyCar race winner or champion, but he has made it pretty clear to me he has the chops to be here. And I think with more experience, this kid running 12th in the championship is probably going to be more 8th, ninth, 10th maybe. And if he's either able to be at a Dale Coin racing team that has more money and more resources to fight with the, uh, the biggest teams on a consistent basis, I think he moves higher in the championship. If he's able to move to one of those bigger teams in the coming years, again, I don't know what his future holds results wise, but I hope some teams are thinking about him. Maybe, I don't know, year two, but maybe year three, year four. If I'm Penske, Andretti, Ganassi, etc., I'm very curious about whether this kid might have something that really needs to be considered for employment. Chris Hoffman, he asked, IndyCar is supposed to announce something about them getting involved in esports at the end of July. Do you know anything about what they're meant to announce or what their plans are? I don't. I've reached out and asked, and an answer is hopefully forthcoming before I'm done recording this morning, Chris. And if so, I will tack it on here somewhere at the end. Bobby Rooney, two unrelated questions for you, MP. If Jay Fry left to do something else tomorrow, who would be your recommended and realistic preference to replace him and why? He also say, what's the genesis for the rule whereby on an oval, lap down cars get their lap back under yellow? Uh, I'll save the discussion for whether people like the rule or not, as I'm sure it's polarizing. But what brought about the rule? I'll start with the last one first. I don't honestly know the genesis. I just know it's kind of been around for a while in racing. Uh, the, the quote, lucky dog, as they uh, refer to it in NASCAR, Bobby, 
just feels like in my lifetime, it's been around for a good while. You often find, don't know if this is the answer, but you often find that if something is done in one place and it seems like it's an okay thing, there's no obvious thing that takes away from the racing. You'll find other series opt in to do that themselves. So I can't tell you whether NASCAR came up with it first, if it was IndyCar, if it was, I have no idea who. So I can't tell you the Genesis. And I honestly don't really have the time to do research on that. You know, it's one of those things that if you really want the full etymology of that, then obviously the uh, the good old internets is there awaiting your research time, Bobby. But yeah, it just seems like it's been around for a while and you often have something where you go, all right, well, we'll do that too because it's become a bit of a standard. The part of about if Jay Fry left, who would be my recommended uh, preference to replace him and why? Yeah, so this this is a really interesting one, Bobby, because Jay, I don't know if he was ever intended to be who he is within IndyCar. When he came in, was really brought in more on the commercial and business development side and then moved over to the competition side. And folks realized that, hey, first of all, we hadn't really seen this Jay Fry guy before in IndyCar. And hmm, he's got a lot of really good basic ideas and they seem to be turning things in a positive direction. And with that reputation inside IndyCar, he is someone who has just been given more and more real estate to look after and tend. So he has been named formally as president of the IndyCar series. As Jay jokes a little bit, he was more or less doing that job just without the title for the last year or two. So I have to admit, Bobby, the question here is amazing but my inability to come up with a quick answer is worrying me a little bit. Um, there are some folks within the paddock who I would consider for such roles. Um, I don't know if they would... I don't know if they possess the same personal approach that Jay brings to things that seems to turn most things in the right direction. I mean, you know, Jay also has his detractors as well. Um, we all do. Trust me. I read about I read about my failings every day on the good old interwebs. Uh, so Jay certainly has some folks who aren't big fans of his management style, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I think of with Jay is a nation builder first and foremost. Good idea guy. A lot of ideas. Really tries to bring things down to a place of simplicity first. Absolutely runs away from complexity. And I love that sensibility. Trying to think of who would continue things in a similar way, because I think they've found something special in him, and we've seen others before him that have facets of what's needed, but significant failings in others. 
I'll throw out a couple names. Uh, Barry Wanzer, team manager at Chip Ganassi Racing, I think would be someone uh, to definitely consider. Uh, Mike Hull might be someone that a lot of people think of. I, I mean, I, I'm not intentionally saying I wouldn't consider Mike. I just don't know if he'd really want the job. Uh, and also knowing that, you know, he's at a place career-wise, professionally, where if he wanted to retire tomorrow, he could you know, he's done this for a long, long time, adding in running the IndyCar series at the very end, uh, because it wouldn't be a one year thing. You know, he really would need to commit three to five years of his life. I just don't know if that's the kind of topper <laughs> I'd want to bolt on at the end of a super long career. Um, again, I'm, I'm trying to think of a few folks where you go, they're old enough to have a lot of experience and the respect uh, needed within the paddock, uh, but not so deeply entrenched on one side or the other, right? Oh, this guy is a team owner, or this person's always fought against this one thing or the other, and you know has a pretty deep pool of folks that would not want them to be around. There's not a lot that honestly really jump out to me right now, and that's maybe the thing that's worrying me a little bit. I mean, you think of Team Penske. Some folks might think Tim Sindrick. Well, he's the president of the entire operation. Uh, he is really meant to be someone that carries on Roger's legacy. I would have a hard time seeing Tim separate himself from Team Penske ever to do that. Um, looking elsewhere in the paddock, you could think of some additional folks, possibly. Um, you know, a Rob Edwards, chief operating officer at Andretti Autosport might be someone that comes to mind. But again, you know, everybody within the rooms of team managers and general managers and such, you know, there's always some serious folks saying, love this guy, hate that guy, screw him, etc. The person that I think might actually be perfect, but I don't know if he'd want it. And I just don't know if it would fit. Uh, his sensibilities or needs. Brian Herta, the the calmest calmest thinker that comes to mind in the paddock. I mean, there's a couple other others as well, but Brian's the super big common sense guy, not a super complexity guy. Very intelligent, but just he's not someone who gets wrapped up in forty seven layers of tangled things. Uh, at all times, Brian might be my number one thought if he were to want to do such a thing, which I don't know if he would. Um, I think Brian could do some pretty amazing things there, but I don't know if he would be really into the 24 hour a day type scenario involved with running the IndyCar series. Let's go to Corey Matthews says, uh, Marshall, question to you, which remaining track on the schedule are you looking forward to the most and why? Well, hmm, I will say Laguna Seca. And, yeah, it's a little bit because it's my home race, but not because it's my home race specifically. It's because I grew up going there, watching IndyCar races, having seen the place just exploding with fans also been there at towards the tail end of champ cars existence when the opposite happened 
I'm really, really hoping that it is a success. And so it's for that reason that I'm really looking forward to that the most, because I hope an old tradition is, is brought new again. I'd say the fallback to there would also be Portland having seen a really strong reaction to it last year. Uh, I am definitely hoping that even more fans come out this year and it does become that thing. That was just a beautiful, beautiful, shining, shining date on the IndyCar calendar. Let's go to Don Gregory says MP is IndyCar planning on any more cross promotional TV ads like they did with the rock. I think it was a great idea. Um, Don and stuff like that. IndyCar has nothing to do with nothing. Uh, that's NBC. So IndyCar is not calling the rock, unfortunately, and doing ads with him. Um, this is something where with a new movie to promote Hobbs and Shaw, I think it is uh, the latest iteration of the fast and furious franchise. Uh, this is something where NBC used the rock and uh, rock slash the uh, movie production company worked together and came up with some promo stuff like that. Obviously racing being the thing closest and most affiliated with the franchise. So yeah, nothing to do with IndyCar aligning anything with the rock. Unfortunately it was NBC and promotion with the movie itself. Uh, let's see. Speaking of the rock, Brett Ross says MP. If your cat Rocky was an IndyCar driver, which current or past IndyCar driver would he be like? Oh, I love, I love my listeners, Brett. Um, so while I love Rocky and he's my little guy, uh, he's, he's my dude. Um, he's not the bravest little thing in the world. Uh, he is skittish for sure. So the doorbell rings thousand miles an hour, gone under the bed, whatever. Um, hell, this is a, this is a true thing as well. When I go to get up from my chair and it creaks a little bit. He goes running because he thinks I might be grabbing him to put him in the little carrier to take him to the groomer, which is a place he hates the most. So rock while he is my guy. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he, he's not the one to be all super filled with confidence, little, little bit high strung in those scenarios. So boy, who, who would I associate those traits with? Part of me, half of me thinks Bourdais from the kind of high strung, like, you know, just look, there's a, a bit of a fear that something bad's going to happen. You know, Seb is the first to admit there's a little bit of a, a black cloud that follows him mentally of, you know, glass half empty, if not broken type mindset more than maybe he should. But as we saw with Takuma Sato and we've seen with him and Paul Tracy, he certainly isn't afraid of a fight, isn't isn't going to run away from that. So he's not like Rocky in that sense. Gosh, beyond that, who's just kind of skittish? And I'm struggling here, Brett. I really am. I apologize. Uh, I probably need to get more sleep. So I'm going to think about that a little bit more because it's really amusing. And we're going to continue on this theme. Kevin Frederico. Hey, Marshall, it's time to settle the scores. Between drivers, so IMS needs to run its own MMA championship. Robin Miller will be the ring announcer, while Paul Tracy will be the ref. Townsend Bell and Andy Lally will also do commentary. It's Sebastian Bourdais versus Takuma Sato. Colton Herta versus Scott Dixon. 
Who else? Huh. Now this one I really like. Hmm. We're talking MMA. Mixed skills pitted against one another. I mean, Tony Kanon, obviously, because he's probably the most physically fit and strongest driver in the series and looks, you know, he could throw a punch. Um, hmm. Trying to think of some interesting matches. Uh, I mean, Max Chilton, you know, kind of the upper crust, right? Who would he go against? Chilton versus Rossi might be fun. They're 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 tallish. Rossi, I think, being the taller, but yeah, they wouldn't cut a good promo. There would be no smack talk whatsoever. But these are you know two kind of upright uh, white guys. There, there's just something stylistically, I think, where that might be fun. Um, I can't say who I think would win though. I think Chilton, you know, again born into uh, a life of comfort and ease he's got the scrap he's got the scrappy scrappy thing inside of him though so i think that would be really interesting ed jones strikes me as someone who could get into a fight and yeah um i'm just trying to think we've got a lot of short indycar drivers now kev so I realize that MMA matches are only two at a time, but there's a part of me since I also try and enjoy WWE, you know, Ed Jones, certainly not troubling a measuring tape. Uh, so I'm thinking we got Ed Jones. We got Zach Veach. We got Takuma Sato, Felix Rosenquist. Also definitely, uh, not someone needing a lot of extra length in his pants. Um, I think we kind of got four right there. I mean, TK obviously is not super tall, but he'd clean all those guys out in about two seconds. Um, I think those, there might be some kind of four-way match, you know, two bouts, uh, some sort of short eliminator thing of those four going in, and then uh, obviously the winner from the two going for whatever crown of uh, IndyCar's toughest short man. Um, the last one I can think of, and it's not because they necessarily have beef, but I'm just thinking, you know, who can we align in what ways? So we have Santino Ferrucci also, I guess I should, geez, I should throw Santino in there. So that'd be the fifth. So what Marcos may be in there as well as the next shortest guy. So maybe it's a three-way battle, um, whittling down again. I'm not exactly sure how that works out, but anyways, um, the only other one I can think of though is Santino since he's kind of done the faux hawk thing, but with his big curly kind of uh, mane on top versus Mateus Laced, who can grow a fro like nobody. So it might be more just a battle of hair than anything else, but I'm just trying to think of, style, you know, what can we throw in there? Um, beyond that, what? Uh, IndyCar doesn't really have a heavyweight division, but if it did, it'd be Graham Rahal. And what, Hunter Ray from a height standpoint, you know? Um, I'm not sure about Graham. Graham is can be the feistiest guy. I just, I don't see arms swinging or legs kicking. Hunter Ray, again, sweetheart of a guy. I could kind of see him going there. So that might be fun. Um, 
Yeah, and I'm just trying to think of those who I'd never put. I mean, you'd never put willpower in there. He would. He'd kill whomever he was fighting, and then he'd turn to the ref and go after the ref and just pummel that poor person because that's willpower. But there's some where you're like, no, this this needs to never happen ever, ever. Joseph Newgarden, too pretty. Plus, he, you know, he's been working all year long with some really painful stuff with braces to kind of reset his, you know, upper plate and get his teeth right. And, you know, we don't want to undo all that. Um, and I just I don't see fight in Joseph Pagano as well. Now, the, he could be a very, very prickly person when he feels he has done wrong. But I just I can't I can't see it. I could see more of Nelson PK kind of kick punch something like he did Elseo Salazar Hockenheim 40 years ago or however long. I Yeah, I, I just can't see that. Uh, Scott Dixon as well. He's just, yeah, too nice of a guy. But he is a Kiwi, and every Kiwi has something inside of them that allows him to fight. I believe that's been genetically proven. Who else? Who else as I look down the list here? uh hinch come on come on the man is made out of maple syrup it's impossible too sweet piggott huh i think i might have slept on spencer piggott uh from florida so you know you know fights have taken place that's just it's granted it's just a given um yeah you know good looking all-american wholesome kid but you know there there's a there's a little bit of scrap in him too i think there might be something something to consider i'm trying to look at who else all right here's one all right i've i mean uh, all right i've totally kind of slept all together here and they're all together at least in points ranked 24th 25th and 26th actually this is a three-way fight which i know they don't do in mma but come on we're taking a little bit of creative license ed carpenter connor daly and sage Karam. huh ed sweetheart again sweetheart of a guy sometimes but yeah you want to talk about a real kind of hard edge take no bleep off of anybody uh yeah ed straight up indiana i love it connor daly same thing with a smile possibly a little more belligerence possibly with a couple of drinks in him um connor seems like someone who would would bull rush you and get you to the ground in ground and pound you but then there's sage Karam, who would not only take you to the ground but then feed you elbows then do like cesaro and wwe and take you first just grab you by the feet and start swinging you around the, the ring um i yeah i love this kind of indiana versus indiana versus pennsylvania thing with ed connor and sage i'm fairly confident sage would just whoop would bend those guys would turn them into human pretzels i think connor put up a good fight though but he'd start laughing at some point in time because that's him um and i still think ed's just gonna ed's gonna go down fighting you know if sage gets his arms around his neck ed's not tapping man he's gonna go out before surrendering so that might actually be the best one the battle of p24 25 and 26 the winner 
I guess gets P24. Unless it's Ed, who's already there. And then, sorry, Ed. I guess you didn't win anything. Um, all right. That might have been my most fun question of the day. Uh, let's see. You're going to go to my pal Carlos Villalobos. MP, if we mostly agree the best competition was between 1995 and 1999, why not take those downforce and power ratios plus tire grip and degradation and replicate them for the next chassis? I would very much agree with you, Carlos, that this was the richest of rich eras. I was there for it, which is pretty awesome. So uh, I can definitely give you the thumbs up on this. And I'm talking cart, not the IRL. Um, so the big thing that I believe made this era what it was on top of all the driver talent and team talent, all these things is a lot of the things you mentioned here are variables. What made the racing very exciting, not always close, but close doesn't necessarily make great racing. Um, what made the racing so memorable for me was the fact that there were huge variables in place. So it was Firestone versus Goodyear, and the advantage moved from time to time. It was more often than not Firestone, but uh, there were certainly some Goodyear wins in there as well. We had the multiple chassis, multiple aerodynamic philosophies as well, and some worked better at some places than others. So it could be a Renard race, it could be a Penske race, could be a Lola race, could be a et cetera, et cetera. On the grip and degradation, again, um, there were variances there. On the downforce levels, there were variances there and drag. So there were some events where a car that might have been garbage on the big ovals was really good on a street course because some of its natural design elements that you couldn't really unbolt um, produced higher drag, but that certainly was not a liability on a street course when you had a whole bunch of power. Then you have the variety in engines as well, four, five manufacturers, some of them making more power than others, some making more torque, some having better top end, some better low end or mid range. Um, there's just a lot of variables. Obviously, there were years where the in this period, obviously, we're looking at the Chip Ganassi Racing, Renard Chassis. Firestone tires, Honda in engine package was the hot ticket, uh, but not everywhere, not at all times. So I think the thing here, though, Carlos, is that you really could not replicate the era just by going to downforce and power numbers uh, and then necessarily um, replicating the tire grip and degradation, because if everyone's on the same tire, they're in theory going to be working within a much narrower realm of variables in terms of things falling off. Um, downforce wise, you know, could do that, but I would say we're probably closer to it now uh, than ever. Power wise, you know, we can put those, those numbers are going to be going back up, but we're talking about two manufacturers painted into a very tight box. And I would expect things, I would expect there to be a difference, right? The Chevy is going to be better than the Honda. Honda is going to be better than the Chevy in certain places, but we don't have the freedom for true differences to be carried out and really make statements like we did. Plus, and here's the final part, uh, if we just talk about competition and fun and variables, 
things blew up more back then. <laughs> Motor failures definitely changed a race. Gearbox breakages, since folks use different types of transmissions, maybe gear ratios and manufacturers for things, a lot of differences. And so, you know, one of the things today is you go, well, we could have that downforce and have that power, but based on reliability, um, there's not going to be that huge variability, I would say, because reliability has just become so amazing in this modern era. That's why I think there's some stuff to think about for sure. I like where we're going with the power coming up. Uh, we'll see what Firestone does from a, a grip standpoint to deal with more tire need, right? We're putting down more power. We're, in theory, going through corners quicker. We're braking uh, from higher speeds and such. We'll see what all that does here in the coming years uh, when we get to the new 2.4-liter motors in 2021. But I don't know if we can truly replicate everything else unless there's kind of the inverse of Formula E's fan boost where we have fan boom and folks can vote on who's going to blow up and when or maybe just randomize it. Um, and yeah, so I don't know if we could get there, Carlos, but I love the line of thinking. Got two questions here from Tom Schreier. Hey, Tom. He says, do you remember any IndyCar or Champ Car race that ran as late as Iowa? I don't recall any. Nor do I, Tom. Um, you know, the only thing that... Uh, leapt out here was if you were watching any of say champ cars visits to or you know cart and champ car going to the uk or germany at the lausitz ring there'd be a time difference uh but you know depending on when those things kicked off and where you were in the u.s or elsewhere it might actually be just a crazy early morning start compared to a crazy evening start but at least domestically nothing really jumps out tom also says after watching Will Power's videos the last few months, and I have noticed our boy DJ Willie P is doing a lot more little Instagram videos and such, Tom has said, I have decided he is the driver I would want to have a meal with. Most of all, said he is hilarious. What active driver would you want to hang out with? Um, That's a fun one. Let's see. I don't know how to say this without it sounding whatever, but I do hang out with a decent number of the drivers just you know friendly relationships from back in the day or some that i've met uh, and you know since i started my careers in the media side so separate from the professional side um know most of the drivers fairly well uh, and some better than others but i would say just go hang out with huh i mean power would probably be an obvious choice Hmm. I think spending some time with Colton Herta would be a blast because he is everything that I know to be Californian. And it's, I think, very much shared sensibilities because I think he and I are very much the same person in that despite the age difference and him being Southern California, me growing up in Northern California, the growing up, liking lots of different things, doing lots of different things, always pursuing different things musically. It could be food. It could be whatever that is in contrast to some folks are like every day I come home from work. I have three beers. I have my steak. 
I have my name the other thing. I watch this thing, and then I watch that thing, and then I go to bed. Um, that works for some people. I know I have known a lot of people like that that I've worked with. And Colton is the exact opposite as I know him and as I understand him. And it just strikes me very much as how I grew up in that kind of, hey, the world's got a lot of stuff in it. Go try and see all of it and learn as much as you can and just let the world in different peoples, different cultures, different thoughts, different, you name it. Take all those things in to make yourself more than what you are naturally. So I think it'd be fun to spend a day, go have a dinner, go do something with Colton and hang out and just see more of uh, the world from his eyes. Cause I have a feeling there might be some pretty significant commonalities there. Uh, after that, probably I'd say Felix Rosenquist, probably Marcus Erickson as well. Since my dad was a British and Swedish car specialist and Sobs were really Sobs and Volvos were core to our lives and how my dad paid the bills, uh, the country of Sweden and their flying automotive products. I mean, just by sheer coincidence, Sweden, the colors of their yellow and blue flag just been a huge part of my life from the outset. So I've always had an affinity for Swedes. I haven't known many, but for those that I've known, I've loved really enjoy those two guys don't know them well. So uh, actually I think it'd be fun to go out and just get to see more of who they are on their own and get to know them better. So one of the things that has sucked a little bit of not being able to be on the road here the last couple months, a lot of races, a lot of opportunities that uh, have not been able to capitalize on from that regard. All right. We are starting to wind down here. Jaime Macias says of the full time drivers of the 21 full timers right now, who do you think have their seats secured for next season? Well, it might be easier to mention the ones that don't. Uh, obviously, we opened with here saying we think there might be an announcement this weekend that Rossi is staying with Andretti and uh, Andretti is staying with Honda. Alexander's driving for someone next year. We know that for sure. Uh, I was mistaken in a conversation Ron Hunter Ray and I had I don't know, a month or two ago about uh, I was under the impression coming off that conversation that he was a free agent at the end of the year. So I called him yesterday on a, on the a drive and said, Hey, uh, did I get that right? And he's like, Nope. Uh, I've got one more year left in my deal. So all good. Um, so he is not a free agent. Uh, we're just looking here through things. Roger Penske said he is, Resigning Simon Pagano, so assuming that's all taken place, Simon is not on the board. Takuma Sato, to my knowledge, has been one-year deals with Ray Hall. Could be wrong, but I believe that's the case. So if that is the case, he would need to, uh, in theory, stay, uh, come up with something to stay in 2020. After that, uh, what? I believe Hinch is on a long-term, Graham's on a long-term. Bourdais has another year left on his deal. I don't know the duration of Rosenquist's contract, Jaime, but at least the way he's been spoken of by Chip Ganassi recently is that, you know, he is there. He's not a, a, a one-year sample, but there is part of a little bit of a longer-term thing. Ciantino, I believe, is a one-year deal with Coin, so that would be a point of negotiation. I think Spencer Piggott might be in a similar deal. 
with Ed Carpenter racing of needing to re-up. Colton Herta, I don't know his deal, but I, how's this? If there were to be any issues or problems with Harding Steinbrenner racing continuing in the sport, I have a very high degree of confidence we would see him in an Andretti Autosport car uh, ASAP. Marcus Erickson, uh, know from what he told me, he wants to return to Schmidt next year, which would imply that he is on a one-year deal, so he would need to get things re-upped. Marco Andretti is obviously in a position where he's a co-owner now of the car that he drives, so I don't genuinely, I truly don't know what his thoughts or plans are for continuing in the sport. Veach has another year left in his deal, as we discussed. Kanan has an open door to stay. I believe his original deal was two years, which in theory means he needs to renegotiate a new contract, but I believe that's a formality. The one driver who jumps out on this list, Jaime, that I think is prone more than any other is Mateus Laced. I have heard and heard from pretty solid source that the team has been inquiring about availability of others to possibly partner with Tony Kanaan next year. And boy... I like Mateus. I really do. I think the kid could be very good. Don't know if we're talking about a winner of IndyCar races. Don't know if we're, and, or yeah, I don't even need to say champion. I think there's great potential there, but I also think that like his predecessors in Connor Daly, in Jack Hawksworth, man, going to the wrong team at the wrong time can if not kill a young career, set you back really far. Connor's been able to dig out of that a bit, uh, and that's awesome. Jack Hawksworth, not so much. Uh, I fear that Mateus, unless the money's really right that's being brought to the team, uh, I fear this might be Mateus's last year in IndyCar. And unless he has money to bring somewhere else, there's no one that would hire him. And it's not because he's a bad kid or lacks potential, but finishes so far back that you're more or less never really in the fight. I know that he finished, um, what, fourth at the uh, IMS road course, but again, just been a non-factor for a team that's been a non-factor. And when you aren't a veteran guy like Kanan who has a reputation a uh, positive one and has proven that he can be a winner and a champion you know, when you're young and you've got nothing to show for it and that team decides it needs to start looking elsewhere it's just tough uh ed jones i don't know whatever duration he might have with the scuderia corsa ed carpenter team um interesting year for ed uh, again flashes flashes of what made him really stand out in indy lights and in that first year with coin, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure where he might be at in terms of returning. I know that the Carpenter team is often one that they, they're they not big swings and gambles type people. So it would not surprise me to see Ed return next year. 
um, knowing that Ed often has been able to bring a little bit of budget, um, no one else is really jumping out to me as, oh, and we need to really try him that that team might decide to do. Uh, Jack Harvey, I spoke with Michael Shank this week and, you know, they're really hoping to have the thing he's been talking about for a while now of wanting to go full time next year, hoping to get that buttoned up here in the next month or two. And I believe Jack is central to those plans. Max Chilton, I'm fairly confident that he will drive for Carlin Racing as long as he wants to, since uh, family support is what uh, really helps make that team exist. After that, I think we're, we're about it, Jaime. So a couple of question marks. Pagano have a contract that is executed and done. Don't know. We know Roger said he's going to have him back. Sato, I believe, needs to uh, work out whatever another kind of one-year deal, if that is uh, if that is indeed needed. Uh, where else? Ferrucci, for sure, um, I would think. I don't know what the budget side is that uh, his sponsors are bringing, but boy, if I was another team, uh, I might be inquiring about whether, you know, he was available or interested. Piggott, not sure, but again, I think that might need to be a discussion there on uh, his returning. Herto, we've already discussed. Uh, he's going to land somewhere uh, for sure if anything goes sideways. Erickson needs to lock down a return to either Schmidt or somewhere else. Part of me wonders. If in light of the Andretti Technologies relationship, a Harding Steinbrenner would be really smart to look at making it known it could run a second car next year. And if Felipe Nazar, who's going to be testing for Schmidt, I uh, happened to connect Sam with him, I think about a right about a year ago, um, a little yeah, maybe just a little under a year ago. Sam reached out and said, hey, you got a, got a number for the guy? And I'm really happy that finally uh, Sam Schmidt, Felipe Nazar, Rick Peterson, they're going to go test here. I think, <laughs> I think that team is going to come away, provided they are just willing to straight up hire Felipe because he's not a money guy, uh, provided they're able to just straight up hire whomever they want for the second car and it's not dependent on a budget being brought, yeah, um, I would be very concerned if I was Marcus because obviously they were teammates at Sauber F1 for two years. Felipe certainly had the upper hand more or less the entire time. Wasn't necessarily close as well, but I would say more than anything, Felipe is just in that hunter-killer class of driver that I put very few into. He is a monster and so I have a feeling the Schmidt team getting to work with him for the first time, not only seeing his natural speed, but also his really supreme technical feedback. Yeah, the minute that uh, I learned that he was testing for the team was the minute that I said, wow, this might be the thing that makes it really hard for them to put anybody other than Felipe in that second car. And provided that's the case, and since I've heard nothing so far about Schmidt expanding to three cars, if things go super well for Felipe on Monday, that might start the clock on Marcus needing to look elsewhere in the paddock if he wants to stay. And who would be available with a quality seat? And could someone like Harding Steinbrenner, with the benefit of Andretti Technologies, be a really smart place for someone like Marcus to consider? And so beyond that, 
Uh, Jaime, I'd say again, Mateus, I think he might be doing his final races. Unfortunately, I really like the kid. I really, really wish things had gone better, uh, but we'll see. And then Ed Jones jumps out as well as for what his future might hold. Uh, Jerry Bundle, MP, I missed last week's question opportunity, but would nonetheless like to hear your assessment of Sebastian's future potential as a pugilist. Already covered that off a little bit, uh, Jerry. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing about Seb is he will not. He he reminds me of a pit bull, uh, a French pit bull. When that guy's jaws lock onto something, I mean, he is not letting go. And it could be uh, an argument. It could be ideology. It could be philosophy. It could be right or wrong. It could be driving a race car, whatever it is. Um, man, I'm just saying. I wouldn't want to fight Seb because he's a, become a really dear friend. He's also like wiry strong. He, he's not a big frame, big muscle guy. He's strong as hell though. Um, yeah, yeah, he's, that's why the Sato thing amused me. I mean, Sato's not a big guy, so it was impressive to see him, you know, giving Seb the business, but I don't think you realize Seb is the dude who won't let something go and is going to go after you until he feels that you grasp uh, how things need to be. So I think he'd be surprising, Jerry. Uh, let's go to Steven Straub. MP, I'm super impressed with Santino Ferrucci's performances this year. Is he under contract with Coin for next year? Any other teams interested in the services? So we covered that off here a little bit, Steve. But I wanted to keep your question and pose it as well because I think the coin team does indeed want him back where there's a little bit of a separate interesting thing is I can guarantee you our friend Dale will be sending me emails here. Uh, probably, I don't know if before the end of the season, but definitely after the season's over asking for contacts for driver a b and c uh usually some of them formula one drivers who look like they might be on the outs or some other ones that have piqued his interest elsewhere i've mentioned this before so i'm not betraying any confidences it's not a big deal it's actually something that happens quite a lot in the sport if i know somebody knows a person i've been wanting to get in contact with i reach out to them they help me with their number um etc etc um and vice versa so i'm usually happy to help team owners with info uh, i gave one team principal the phone number of a driver who's currently in indycar uh who said they're interested in speaking with them possibly about something for next year um did that yesterday totally normal i know other reporters do it again so none of this stuff is out of the norm dale on the other hand is a little bit out of the norm in many ways um i'll get these emails from dale in the middle of december like hey do you know how i can get a hold of name a pretty good formula one driver it's like well i don't have that person's contact info but i probably could within 20 minutes by asking a friend who would have it or he has a friend or the the however many degrees of kevin bacon game getting that kind of info so unless there is something signed and announced here soon with Santino, um, it'll just be interesting to see Dale in his 
constant want and look for who's next what's is there a big nugget to unearth he really loves that side of the sport being the talent spotter so the thing that would be a little bit rare is this exact scenario steve where in theory with the kid saying he'd like to stay and continue and i believe everyone on the team side who doesn't own the team but everyone beneath dales like hey we'd love to have him back this would be great um i think it's just going to come down to dale and whether he is willing to go against type and sign something lock it in and have it done or kind of keep his eye open on the radar and then we'll see how long that extends into the off season of santino not quote being signed to his team the natural offshoot to that though as we know is okay well i've told you i want to sign and uh, i got my sponsors that kind of want to do this too so if you want to put us on hold while you look around and evaluate your options cool but that tells me we should do the same and so that's why uh, i'd mentioned just a few moments ago about you know there should be some other teams looking at santino for sure and you know we don't know if uh takuma sato is going to continue next year what at 43 years old i hope he does but who knows is there a seat available at ray hall letterman lanigan racing would santino benefit from being there i think so i mean it's a bigger team more money more resources um that could be interesting to consider uh ed carpenter side again who knows um i hope they keep spencer pickett but if there's anything changing there we know ed is going to respect a young american who can get up on the wheel on ovals that is absolutely what santino has shown he can do plus he's been very good on the road courses too um that might be a conversation to be held beyond that again i don't know carlin um carlin could certainly use a driver with a budget to bring don't think andretti is going to have enough seats uh don't know if anything would happen at schmidt uh foyt would not be a place that centino or any other driver would probably want to entertain right now but yeah getting back to your point steve i would think coin would actually benefit from saying all right we have a good thing let's keep it going and just not wander into the same uh, constant off-season search for could there be another face uh, in the crowd to find that no one else has. Our man Vincent has said, any word if the arrow screen will bring NASCAR or F1 drivers to race Indy 500, who have said it's too dangerous, and he said he wishes Daniel Ricardo, the Bush brothers, and Jimmy Johnson would show up to do it. I haven't heard anything about that yet, Vincent, and I wouldn't expect to because we haven't seen it. And at least in scenarios like this, it's often uh, a gotta see it, have to grasp it, have to make full sense of it in practice before folks would then kind of have the light bulb go off, go, oh, you know, now that I see it running, now that I understand what it is, how it works from a safety standpoint, not just what's been mentioned, not renderings and otherwise, but see it on track and running and testing. Hear some feedback directly from those. See what it looks like from in-car camera and such too it's those kinds of things that would sway people's decisions more than the announcement of something coming anthony gauche says mp what are your thoughts on the sato and karam incident at iowa do you apportion most of the blame 
in Sage's way as race control did. I don't know if I'd get into blame so much, Anthony. Uh, We are at a point in time in the sport where seemingly any incident that slows, impedes, does something that does not allow the other person to have a perfect race is reviewed and possibly penalized. I just thought it was a racing incident. Sato slowed, quote, checked up. Do I think Sage was possibly looking at his dash, uh, not seeing things the moment that they happen to then react to it immediately? Maybe Um, if there's, quote, fault or blame here, it seemed like Sage was just a little bit slow in recognizing what was happening happening in front of him uh, and then did not have enough time to avoid. So there was maybe a crucial second second and a half i don't know maybe two whatever the exact amount of time was it seemed like sage just didn't get the full picture of what was going on in front of him the moment it started happening and then did not have enough time to avoid hit the back sato broke his right front wing and two of them obviously had their races uh suck even more after that um i don't know i I just thought honestly anthony was a racing incident and there was a point in time where such things were just called that and someone would say oh it was just a racing incident and no more thought was put into it um actually turning that into a punishable offense as well i realize it's in the rules i realize there's precedent set for it i don't know at some point in time if you can never make a mistake um boy we sure we sure have a strange sport uh if you can never make a mistake without fear of being penalized for it um sometimes the mistake is the penalty itself sometimes it involves other drivers usually the way things work out is if you kind of screw up someone's day a little bit through something that wasn't super egregious it wasn't like oh my god what what was the guy thinking how blind were you we're not talking that grade of incident those things tend to all get shared around. Everybody gets hit by it at some point in time. So anyways, um, the racing is an incident. Um, Sage, I think, yeah, it wouldn't have happened. Sato would not have been hit if Sage had recognized it sooner, but it's not as if Sage took five seconds to recognize it. Tanner Miller, hey, Tanner, says, MP, any word on the future of Iowa? I'm really hoping it will be back. I have to believe it will for quite some time. There's just quality there every year. It's a quality event. I realize that it lacked a title sponsor. I realize that, you know, the business side might not be as healthy as it should be. It's just something to me that needs to be a a significant point of effort on IndyCar's part and the circuit's part to keep this thing going. And definitely at night on Saturdays, Uh, windy car, says mp tire strategy is so much of the sport is there any source that produces a little infographic that shows driver by driver their tire sequence through the race uh for example dixon had four pit stops three tire changes stint one was zero to 47 laps on reds uh, etc drivers you know shows them as what they did and what kind of uh breakdown the one and this is not necessarily a super public resource so who knows i might get a little grumpy note saying why did you share that well i share it because 
I share lots of stuff. We're all fans of this stuff. Uh, the source to go to as the road and street course races are happening, since there are not tire options on the ovals, uh, you can go to livetiming.net forward slash Firestone. And so as the race is taking place, they are indeed, uh, this page is being updated with every driver, where they are running. It's basically like a timing and scoring type, I guess, table. Uh, but it does show indeed what tires they are on and for what duration. So it's pretty cool. And so many of us are watching this throughout the race to see that, aha, so-and-so pitted and used, took on scrubbed reds compared to new reds or so on and so forth. So livetiming.net forward slash Firestone. Uh, and that is something to keep an eye on once, say, this weekend gets moving at Mid-Ohio. Uh, Sasha Khan, and I hope I am pronouncing your last name correctly, Sasha. If not, I apologize. Sasha says, Simon Pagano received a bonus point for, quote, leading a lap at Iowa due to the race starting under yellow. It'd be interesting if this point made the difference in the championship. Why does IndyCar occasionally start races under yellow to save 40 seconds of two green laps? Question mark. Um, I mean, in this instance, with rain having washed the track down, taken away all rubber, rain, thunder, you name it, the true torrential downpour, I, I wouldn't think it was too crazy to try and set things up in a way where uh, they wanted to do a couple of exploratory laps where the crazy, crazy uh, situation of being green right away without the field having had a chance to charge into turn one to see what the grip is like. I'm thinking the reasoning falls somewhere in that range. I could be totally wrong. Uh, I probably am. But I think that's the mindset here. I did have the same thought about, oh, okay, so you got a point for leading a lap, even though uh, it was a guaranteed lead. Um, you know, part of me wonders if that needs to be an exception that's taken away in the rules, because if you're not leading the lap based on competition, but because it's baked in, because they're starting the race under yellow, I realize that earning pole position earned you the right to cross the start finish line first when the race goes uh, green on the opening lap that doesn't guarantee you you will be leading it at the end of that first lap therefore there's no guarantee pole position will give the pole winning driver one lap led therefore uh, the ability to earn points or a point so interesting not sure if there'll be any tweaks there, and as usual, I'm probably forgetting something, but there you go. All right, we're almost done here. Going to go to Tim Falkowitz, who says, I know each team has an engine technician in the pits. What are they doing during a session? Looking at data, can they make engine adjustments while the car is on track, or do they plug in a cord when the car comes into the pits, and what kinds of changes are made? Well, you'll see, Tim, there's a single umbilical cord that is plugged in, in the cockpit, on the right side of the cockpit, down by the driver's leg, uh, lower body and torso and such. Yes, definitely be monitoring data during the session through telemetry. Cannot make changes to the engine 
uh, while the car is on track through telemetry, it is one way coming from the car to the pits. They cannot send information or changes back through a wireless transmissions per the rules. Everything is done via plug-in. In terms of changes, you'd be surprised that despite the fact that we have everybody using, quote, identical engines as uh, given by their engine suppliers at Honda Performance Development and uh, Chevy Racing through their partner Ilmore Engineering, you know, every motor is going to have some minor, minor variances to stay on top of. You're certainly going to have little things that don't always go correctly as well, Tim. That's the thing that is probably reported on the least, unless it's a blow-up or some sort of significant issue that requires an engine change. There isn't anything that's really offered when things go wrong. Yeah, boy, we're having a, a fueling issue, a spark issue, a something. Unless you can hear it on track and the car is going by on five cylinders instead of six. Or the driver says, yeah, boy, it really, we're having a big issue under initial acceleration where the thing would start to sputter or stall. Or it could be a turbo wastegate thing. It could be a temperature-related thing. Some of the ancillaries um, that make the engine cool or perform however it's needed. These are all things that the technicians are monitoring. In terms of actual changes, like, hey, we're going to somehow magically make more compression ratio can't really do that through a computer so much um but in terms of mapping that's a big area Uh, lots of work on throttle mapping just general performance mapping the engine tuning itself these are little tweaks that can be made that are made on a very regular basis hey coming out of the slower corners when i get on the throttle it does too much of this or too little of that Can you change the table, the gradient of how that either ramps up or ramps down and reacts? So on top of making sure the engine is performing correctly, looking at every imaginable parameter, temperatures, pressures, you name it, you also have the uh, engine technicians who really, there are better ones than others, just like every aspect and every, I guess, profession. But you definitely hear from drivers who had, you know, engine support tech a last year and boy, they really got me. They really understood what I needed and how they were able to tune the engine's response to my inputs. And then you have some others that maybe don't fully get a driver as much and aren't able to perfect the mapping to what a driver wants from, uh, when they're using the throttle and just going forward in general with that motor behind them. So, That, I would say, is really the unsung area of engine tuners, Tim, in IndyCar. The the better ones can really help a driver extract everything from vehicular performance based on getting that motor to sing exactly how they wanted when their feats is in action. All right, down to two more questions, then two letters slash rants to close things. Go to Brian Dorchik, who says, I was at the IMSA race at Lime Rock last week and was blown away by the volume of the GT Le Mans class Corvettes and Porsches. So it was, says it was my first time seeing them live. Also, two of the best-sounding race cars on the planet. Brian says, from a volume standpoint, how do the current IndyCar V6s compare? All the best to you and your wife. Thank you, Brian. 
Uh, again, compare strictly on volume, not as loud for sure. And that's simply because we are talking turbocharged V6s that do not rev to a crazy high number versus naturally aspirated Corvettes and Porsches that do not have turbochargers in the way, uh, really dampening sound on the way out of the exhaust. So uh, it's pretty raw and unfiltered from those Corvettes and Porsches. Porsche in particular, very high-pitched, a really screaming motor, the Corvette, super rumbling, being a lower revving V8 to the flat six in the Porsche. IndyCar obviously revving to 12,000 RPMs. That's good. 13 would be better. 14, 15 would be perfect from a sound standpoint. They are smaller motors, though. I would say as we go to larger displacement, you just tend to hear a little bit more anger. Uh, The more volumetric capacity that's used. So I think for what's coming, also the fact that they're wanting to, while not use more revs, they're wanting to get the power up in the 800, 900 horsepower range. I think we're just going to have a lot more ferocity going on within the combustion chambers, Brian, so that I can't wait for 21, 20, 22, 23 to get here because I think we're going to have some fiercer sounding V6 twin turbo IndyCar engines. But yeah, uh, it's it's never going to be like the Corvettes and Porsches. And final question here comes from Brad asking, why are tickets for Laguna Seca so expensive? Five O's. And so says the day of the race, tickets are $120 and no pit passes for sale. Have not had a chance recently to take a look, Brad, and see what the uh, ticket prices are at Laguna. But what you're mentioning jives with what a number of people have said. Hey, (laughs) I want to go there. That's great. Wow. It really feels like the return of IndyCar and the sanction fee. And since it's owned, the circuit is owned by Monterey County and it's being seen as a place to generate profit for a lot of, you know, general profit, but also a lot of the renovations going on at the circuit. Hey, there's a feeling like, boy, the fans sure are feeling the pain of paying for things. Yeah, I've heard a lot of that, Brad. I've got no response uh, to counter it in any way. Uh, I know that I spoke with my friends at Sonoma Raceway, a.k.a. Sears Point, uh, whose tickets were much lower. And they kind of were wondering the same thing. Hmm, Wow two Bay Area IndyCar races within 12 months of one another and going to one, silly expensive. Going to the other, not so much. One's privately owned. One is owned by the county. Um, Yeah, I just think that, I think if turnout, Brad, for the race is disappointing, I think folks are going to be able to point to this and say, well, what'd you think? 120 bucks for race day? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I'm not afraid to spend money on things that I like. That just seems like a lot of money. <laughs> just, you know, uh, and I love Laguna. Uh, I mean, I love it. If I were an IndyCar just straight up fan, if Marshall Pruitt decided he was going to go become an artichoke farmer and just hey i'm gonna go 
see the race and see some old buddies and hang out and say hi. I got to admit, Brad, I'd be working some friends and and contacts. Hey, man, you uh, you hook me up with a ticket for race day because although I'm not afraid to spend money on the things that I like, if I had to go on my own, 120 bucks for a hour and 50 minute race yeah um this really seems like something where they're either overplaying their hand thinking that the return of indycar is going to be so popular that whoa 100 whatever whatever the amount is who cares gotta go gotta see it uh stick me all you want i'll just deal with it i think they might be overplaying their hand there I also think that while the circuit, uh, let's just say s- totally independent of IndyCar, sets the ticket price. IndyCar does not say what is going to be charged. I would just also suggest here, Brad, on your absolutely point-perfect note, that there might be another a secondary failure to recognize something. First, if they think folks are going to be so enamored and IndyCar is coming back that they'll just pay through the nose, I think that's going to turn. That's going to not be proven to be accurate. The second thing, which is maybe another failure to recognize item, is IndyCar is trying to rebuild itself. IndyCar is trying to become more popular like it once was. It is a long and grinding process to get there. The one way to make sure that that process faces significant challenge is to put ticket prices up like they are here. Um, if you're trying to rebuild something, trying to go back to a place that once worked, and you jab people, keep in mind there's probably plenty of folks who know nothing about IndyCar, heard about it, weren't there when it was at Laguna. Dad talked about it. Mom talked about it. Grandpa talked about it. That might be interesting to go see. Cool, you know. I heard that was really awesome back in the day. It's a bit of a local legacy. Hey, let's see. They're coming back around again. $120? What? Yeah. Um, this is one of those things where I hope to be proven wrong. I hope that everything I've just said will be pure fallacy, will be pure Prove it. You're an idiot. I'd love that because that would mean lots of people are there. That'd be great. I'm still fairly confident in saying that if those ticket prices came down to something more reasonable, you're going to have even more people there. So could be a learning opportunity. Hopefully this doesn't set the race back from its return and make it hard for folks to come back afterwards. Uh, Because if you turn people off when the thing's been gone for 15 years or however long, um, yeah, yeah (laughs) i feel you brad i also feel really lucky that i have a hard card that gets me in for free all right let's close the show with uh two entries to our letters slash rants department this comes from ryan terpstra he says i know the weekend indycar does not have a soapbox but i would like to butt in here with a quick one he says please support your local indycar race if you can i'm also going to challenge uh, your definition of quote local Ryan says, I made an 899-mile round trip to the Iowa race last weekend. 
says the race started at midnight Eastern. He says that was my body clock at least. And I didn't bring warm clothes since I expected to melt in the sun, not shiver in the cold. He says, I only saw 40 laps of the race before my six-year-old had enough, but the trip was worth it and I'll do it again. He says, total cost tickets, $30 hotel, $90 food and fuel, $100. He says for 220 bucks, I was able to make lasting memories with my six-year-old. He says most concerts in quote, insert your hometown cost $220 plus, And I managed to do this and still be home by 2 p.m. on Sunday for a race nearly 500 miles away. Ryan says, instead of complaining about another lost oval in the comments section, show up and support your favorite oval slash road course slash street course. He says, it isn't that expensive and it's a great way to invite a friend or a neighbor who don't typically follow IndyCar and make new fans of them well that's an awesome awesome letter wouldn't even call it a soapbox just call it a really good suggestion here ryan would also say following brad's question um yeah your number might have to be adjusted if you drove out here to monterey uh just on the ticket the price for two tickets would exceed your total trip cost of call it 900 miles uh with your child so love the thinking here ryan and hopefully those will take your suggestion to heart um and i lied there's actually three that i put in here i forgot one i pasted in ed joris you're up next you get the penultimate one mp this could be a soapbox moment from last week's technology discussion in other series there are such partnerships uh and they are extremely profitable this was the question of why don't more indycar teams reach out to businesses industries tech companies and such outside the world of racing to benefit one another he says a close acquaintance of mine worked on an f1 technical partnership for his employer that helped both parties quite a bit he says that was a quote behind the scenes tech partnership that would uh, take me uh, an hour to explain he says more on indycar's level i know of tech that was developed by a partner and sponsor made for a pinnacle level sports car enterprise that drivers use in the races and would transfer to indycar easily That technology was later licensed by the sponsor to an auto supplier and is available on some passenger cars. Now, he says this deal is paid for more than five seasons of pinnacle level sports car sponsorship. IndyCar is missing out by focusing on costs to the exclusion of opportunity because they don't play chess in Indy. Okay. Uh, There are all kinds of driver aids in particular that would be completely transferable to passenger cars. I can't tell you what these things are. But they go so far beyond what uh, we were talking about last week. It would shock you by closing the door. IndyCar is cutting its teams out of the market. Uh, yeah, Ed, I've spoken about this many, many times about, and this in particular on the electronic side, that as long as IndyCar stays spec, they are cutting out all kinds of relationships that could benefit teams financially and from a technological aspect. And it applies to so many other aspects of the car. Uh, if you open the ability for drivetrain development, realize probably not the engine, but everything else in the drivetrain uh, that puts that power to the ground, good Lord, I have to believe there'd be a lot of really interesting relationships to be explored, benefits to be found, possibly 
financially, hopefully financially as well. So, yeah, it's what we used to have. It's what used to happen. It doesn't really happen anymore. And I just can only continue to hope that IndyCar will recognize the more you keep spec and closed and cut down is going to help keep costs down. It's also going to keep IndyCar's exposure down and IndyCar's place in the marketplace down. Because if you shut off the ability for businesses to get engaged with teams and even the series on an automotive front, technological front, electronics, you name it. If you cut all the, those things out because you want to hand things off to a spec supplier, okay, you got the cost down, but we're always going to be locked in this. Why can't the team find more money? Why can't they make this? Why can't they make that? Well, you've just shut out so many forms of business that what we got is about all we can find. All right, we're going to close here. And I trying to remember why I threw this in because it's, well, I don't know. Um, maybe it's just a nice way to close. I think that's probably what came to mind. Comes in from Michael Goodyear who says, Marshall, uh, I'd like to thank you for your candor and continue to uh, update your podcast family while you and your wife continue the ongoing fight against cancer. As you've said, even though I've never had the opportunity to meet either of you, I have you in my thoughts and I'm sending positive energy your way as I hope things improve. Also, a huge thanks to work on creating content while everyone else uh, and everything else is going on. Uh, it's much appreciated because, as you well know, all of us would understand if you took some time off. So I look at it as a gift from you to keep us uh, informed while you are recording and reporting. Well, look at that. That's my ego on display. I put a self or a congratulatory thing in as the final item here. Um I think I put this here just because I wanted to use it as a pivot to say thank you to Michael and to everyone yet again. Um, I'm a highly competitive person. <laughs> Might not be a surprise. Hey, I've kind of grew up playing sports my whole life and then got into IndyCar and uh, motor racing in general. And yeah, you don't do that if you don't like to compete. So it's no different as a reporter. Um, I don't necessarily feel like I have competition from other reporters because David Mauser's style of reporting and what he sees to write about and do is often very different from my own. Same with the Jim Iello. So while we might be competing in the same sport slash series, uh, we tend to produce different content. So again, I don't really see it in a competitive sense that way. Like, oh, we're all rushing to the same thing, same story. Who's going to do the best? It's not that at all. Uh, but it, I am super competitive from, a, you know, I do this and whatever little name I have as a guy doing it, I want to make sure that it isn't forgotten. So I better keep doing stuff. Uh, so the just the challenge here is the, all right, so for every minute I am, writing something, recording something or whatever, uh, could I be doing something else that's more beneficial on the home front? And then there's also the flip side is, which is, it's also very therapeutic. Uh, I like to work. I'm a service dog. I enjoy what I do. And sometimes I just need a break from all the other stuff, which can get to be very heavy or very persistent always there always there and so sometimes it is nice to do this it involves being selfish but i'm learning that's not a bad thing it's bad if that's all you do 
but actually carving out some time to do the thing that keeps your mind centered, keeps your spirit whole, whatever, however to describe it. Um, that's important too. So uh, I appreciate your appreciation, Michael, and any appreciation that everyone else or anyone else has shared. Uh, there is definitely a, a selfish angle to this as well. And I absolutely need to acknowledge that. So I wish I could do more right now. I could, but it would push too far into what I would feel was acceptable uh, in terms of turning my attention away from my wife and what she needs from me uh, and what we need in general, what we're trying to do. And also we're moving. So that's another thing where I'm like, man, all these podcasts I've been trying to get out forever. <laughs> Who the hell are you season two? No joke. I started recording it this weekend last year, uh, Friday at mid Ohio. 2018 in the Aeroschmidt Peterson Motorsports number five transporter it was myself and a certain Mr. James Hinchtown Cliff um, sitting in uh, the front of his little driver lounge with uh, his awesome PA Fiona Hewitson recording the very first of whatever 18 or 20 who the hell are you season twos. They're sitting on my hard drive still. It truly, I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna have a one year anniversary. Uh, it's a year old, and I still haven't produced the damn things. Um, we've got so many things I'm trying to crank out here. I just, again, part of the, the life needing my attention more than my profession is stuff like that. Unfortunately, just gets pushed way, way to the back of the list. So, honestly, uh, and to close here, gang, the thing my wife wants more than anything right now is for her and us to get back to normal normal meaning hey we want to do something let's go do it we don't want to do something let's not having the ability to pick and choose what our days and weeks and months are like getting back to that freedom that's maybe the part that I didn't fully grasp when cancer entered our world uh, the weekend of Portland last year, end of the weekend. Um, you realize it's going to be a fight. You realize there's going to be stuff and you go to the doctor and you get this and there's chemo. You, you get that it's going to be a thing. Don't necessarily get the fact that if it's not easily and quickly treated it actually kind of takes away your freedom and again uh, it's not incarceration take away your freedom so it's not a complaint it's just what has changed but yeah that's the thing that honestly that's a thing that michael on truly that's the constant adjustment and i it has never fit and i've never it's never settled. It's like, okay, this is what it is. It's just, all right. Um, today, for example, got a very early start to record this and get it put out. Um, I interviewed Zach and uh, Darren Tuesday morning, early Tuesday morning, because that's the little window I had before I had to leave to get to the hospital. I'm recording this very early Wednesday morning. Uh, because I have to leave and go to the uh, new facility that we're at, um, it, which is now farther away and blah, blah, blah. 
it's that just kind of thing for myself where you go, hey, so the freedom to do the thing you like to do when you want to do it, which you've always done. Okay, that's not there. Been gone for a good while. Don't know when it's going to come back. You really want it. Flip that to my wife and you go, your entire world has stopped. (laughs) Work, uh, life, um, just like everything. And I'm not going to go into detail, but truly everything has stopped. Freedom, whatever amount of freedom I have, quote, had to give up, she's, it's double, triple, quadruple for her. So uh, I've got no complaints. She has the right to complain fully. So it's just that thing, Michael, where you go, all right, all I want to do, all she wants to do is just, hey, let's go sit on the couch on Saturday and binge watch Real Housewives of whatever, um, go to Netflix and it's comedians and cars getting coffee and we're going to watch every episode and then it's going to be queen of the south and who knows we're just going to have a veg out saturday low ambition saturday do nothing but sit in our butts watch tv and just (laughs) be bums that's the thing we want to get back to having the opportunity to choose to do that so in and among all that try and put out some work try and do some things try and write what I can knowing that uh, with my friends and partners at racer, which I recently celebrated my sixth work anniversary with them. Um, you know, I've been a big part of what they do for a while now. And so I feel bad that I'm not able to generate the frequency of content that I've been able to, but just trying to work within all those different places, Michael. And it's kind of a fractured existence. And I know that I share that fractured existence with every one of you and many others who have husbands, wives, friends, parents, loved ones who are fighting, whether it is cancer, some other disease, a horrible car crash that has created ripples throughout your world. All the things that suck. Um, You learn quickly that if you didn't know beforehand, Pretty much every person you know has someone, if it's not themselves, has a connection to someone who's going through something that they really wish they weren't. So uh, it's normal. It's strange. It's not welcome. But as I have come to understand, it is normal. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. This is our Week in IndyCar series brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. Thank you for listening. I tried to do this as quickly as I could. I believe I have failed yet again. Also, with five to six pages of questions, um, I just thank you for sending those in, and hopefully you have enjoyed this week's episode, and I will look forward to speaking to you next.